One of the things my father really never forgave me for during his life, because I didn't make very many reunions. And I think maybe uh, this was my third. You know, I, I was working in the movies and we were busy sort of in June and I, I didn't get back for very many. But he didn't uh, take that excuse at all. He never, with the exception of, he served in World War I, for exception of two and a half years, three years that he missed reunions there. And a year before he died, he never missed a reunion, ever. That's amazing. And his class has, uh, 1898 has the best record for reunions, I think, of any class. Yeah. In he never let me forget about this uh, bad <coughs> alumnus thing. He'd call me up. And he never got the time difference thing. He called me up when he went to work, and this was seven o'clock in the morning in uh, Indiana, Pennsylvania, and that's four o'clock in the morning here. And uh, sound asleep, but I, I, the first thing he'd bring up, he said, "You're a lousy alumnus, and I, uh, I, I can't impress on you more the fact that this is a terrible thing." And when my 40th reunion came up, yeah, I got the call at 4.30 in the morning. <laughs> Dad still hadn't figured and out the said, time. now your 40th reunion is coming up. You've been a lousy alumnus the whole time. <laughs> but I want to tell you this, and I want to tell it to you straight. If you miss your 40th reunion, you're doomed. <laughs> well, I don't know when your dad says you're doomed I, I, I didn't even at 4.30 in the morning I, I, I couldn't hear him so I told him I was in a picture I said I've got to go back to Princeton I, I, it's my 40th reunion they say what? Yeah, I, I, and I, but I went and I had a fine time and I'm, I'm glad I did just told him to hold the movie and went back hold the movie yeah yeah when your dad says you're doomed better move quick we'll take a break we'll be right back Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode 122. My name is James Scully. Tonight on Breaking Walls, we spend the holidays in the Old West with Jimmy Stewart, director Jack Johnstone, and The Six Shooter. If this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, welcome to the show. You can find this series on every podcasting platform and at thewallbreakers.com. Tonight's opening song is an authentic player piano 1925 Christmas greeting. Perhaps the Stuarts sat around by the fireside opening gifts to it. Either way, it's a beautiful piece that Britt Ponsett would have enjoyed. Join the Breaking Walls Facebook group to keep in touch with news, snippets, photos, and other additions to the podcast at facebook.com groups slash thewallbreakers. In Burning Gotham, 
the new historical fiction audio drama set in 1835 New York City, is very much on its way. Go to BurningGotham.com for teasers and more information. You can also support these shows for as little as $1 per month at Patreon.com slash TheWallBreakers. I directed in the studio, wearing a pair of earphones with heavy muffs on them so that I couldn't hear any sounds directly. I'm thoroughly convinced it was the only way to direct a radio program for several reasons. It gave you much better control over the whole show. If the show began to run a little slowly, a guy could stand in the control room and wave his arms frantically until some actor looked up or maybe all of them, then they all sped up, and then the next signal was, as you see. Whereas in the studio, right next to the actors, I could tell one actor to speed up just a little bit, and another one perhaps even to slow down. If an actor was too close to Mike, I could push him back gently or move him in. Sound effect cues were never missed when I was in the studio. As a matter of fact, I preferred directing on CBS over the other networks, simply because of the personnel involved. They were far more interested in, all they gave a hoot about was putting on a good show. Earl Ransom Jack Johnstone was born on May 7, 1906 in Vineland, New Jersey. In the early 1920s, he was majoring in abnormal psychology at Rutgers University. He dropped out, finding work in the mental health field. Johnstone found his true vocation while earning $32 per week at an ad agency. In those days, the agencies were in charge of radio programs. A colleague was writing scripts for Buck Rogers. He asked Johnstone to help. I was sitting in front of a calculating machine figuring station time costs. A friend of mine was assigned to write Buck Rogers for Kellogg. Five a week, 15 minutes. He uh, decided that it was a little too much for one person to do and asked me if I'd like to take a crack at writing some of them with him. So I did. We were both getting $32 a week at the time. I wrote five, he wrote five. We'd get together every two weeks, compare notes, plot ahead. Each of us tried to leave the other with a cliffhanger that could not be licked. <laughs> and it worked out pretty well. One day, Carlo D'Angelo, who was one of radio's early great directors, was directing Buck Rogers. Oh, in those days, we used to rehearse from 9 o'clock till about 11 in the morning for a 15-minute show, then go to the studio and rehearse another hour or two before airtime, just for a 15-minute show. But Carlo called me one morning and said, Jack, I attended a <clears throat> wedding last night. A little too much vino. You think you could take over the morning rehearsal? 
So I took over the morning rehearsal and the afternoon rehearsal and put the show on the air. And the next day, Carlo didn't even bother to call. So I put that show on the air. And this went on for three or four months. And I was still getting my $32 a week. And finally, Doug Coulter, who was head of radio production for NWR, called me into his office. And I walked in, and Carlo was sitting there, hands folded, looking a little sheepish. And Doug said, Jack, we've got some new programs we have to develop for some of our new clients. I understand that you've been writing very successfully. Maybe you'd like to take a little crack at direction. What I'm suggesting is that you go to the rehearsals. If a time comes when Carlos seems to think you might take over, uh, I'll take his word for it. Are you willing to give it a try? And I said, yes. Thank you very much, Doug. Carlo and I walked out hand in hand. Carlo gave me a beautiful kiss and that was all that was ever said of it. Of course, he continued to collect taxi fare every afternoon from NW Air to CBS. But that started my directorial career. When Kellogg's dropped sponsorship, Johnstone convinced CBS that he could write and direct the entire show if another sponsor could be found. He began pulling in $300 per week and later gravitated to Johnny Presents and the Adventures of Superman. Was there a time that you were doing Buck Rogers and some other programs? Yes, there was one time when I was doing Buck Rogers, two Philip Morris dramatic spots on the Philip Morris variety shows, and Smiling Jack. Oh, and during that time, I also, we recorded Superman. Those were busy days and nights. I left the house right after breakfast, got home between midnight and one o'clock. Those were busy days. By the 1940s, Johnstone was one of radio's busiest directors, finally convinced by his friends to come out to the West Coast. Yeah, well, friends out here had been after me for years to actors and actresses and whatnot who had moved to Hollywood to come out to Hollywood. I was doing two shows in New York, Star for a Night, which we pulled somebody out of the audience and stood them up in front of a microphone and made them read a script. And I was also doing Crime Doctor. When Orson Welles was picked to do any show he wanted for Sacconi Vacuum Oil Company. So the agency called me and said, Orson has picked a couple of writers. Will you direct the audition? Orson had kidded me for years because I never used him on a show, <laughs> which was kind of funny. I got together with the writers, and I remember I took along a ruled legal pad. And after talk with them, mapped out a format for the audition. He wanted to use Jimmy Durante as a guest. He wanted Rita Hayworth on the show, his wife then. I mapped the thing out, met the writers again, they thought it was a great idea, and started working on a couple of sketches. Orson then appeared in town, he'd been away, by the way, called me, said, will you meet me and grab the writers and meet me at my hotel room? So we gathered there, Orson took one look at this thing and said, this is absolutely perfect. The audition was scheduled for, as I recall, about three weeks later. 
in one of the playhouses theater there in New York. This is Orson Welles just saying hello before the show starts. There's a full moon tonight. February 11th is the anniversary of the day Thomas Elva Edison was born. He invented the incandescent lamp only to discover years later that Spencer Tracy had beat him to it. <laughs> Welcome to your radio almanac, ladies and gentlemen. I guess Orson called the writers and me at least a dozen times in those three weeks. I've got a great idea. Let's get together. We'd talk it over and the writers would go and make a change. Instead of a house orchestra to do the music breaks and curtains and whatnot, Duke Ellington happened to be in town. The format got worse and worse as the days wore on. I spent 17 successive hours in rehearsal with the orchestra alone. We finally did the audition. I don't mind telling you I'm scared stiff. Well, scared stiff? Why? Well, aren't you going to saw me in half? The client, big shots, sat in the low seats in this otherwise empty playhouse. We did the audition and it fell so flat on its face that it was just ridiculous. Compared to me, Sinatra is just a boy scout. After it was over, the band finally winged out the last curtain. Orson grabbed me and said, I'm sorry. Well, nothing could be done. Until a few weeks later, I got a call from the agency saying Orson would like to do another audition. The agency will pay for it. Do you still have that original format? And I said, yes. So we worked that out, worked on that, did it, and it sold like that. This sounds boastful. I don't mean it that way at all. But then Orson decided that he had other interests, particularly picture interests here on the West Coast, decided he'd like to do the show in Hollywood. Sinatra would never make it. Would I come along? What well, meant dropping two shows in New York, but as I say, people have been after me to come out here for years. So I said yes. We came out and we started doing this show out here. It was called the Orson Welles Almanac. Say something romantic. Oh, my darling. What's funny about that? Oh, my darling. I love you with an equatorial passion. You ought to see me in Jane Eyre. I love you with an equatorial passion that no thermometer can register. Oh, my darling. Pardon me, Anne. Hello? Oh, hello, dear. What? We're only acting. Of course I don't mean it. Honestly, she was only teaching me something. Oh, I know you can. But I, I, but, but, you know I do. I said you know. I said you know I do. I can't say it now. There are people listening. <laughs> I say, I say there are people listening. <laughs> oh, please don't be angry. I'll call you later. Goodbye. Who was that? My laundry man. <laughs> oh, yes, you've got to be awfully nice to them these days. Now let's go on. Thanks to somebody wise at the William Morris Agency, my contract, at the end of any 13-week period, I could quit. 
I could quit any time during those 13 weeks and be paid for 13 weeks. I to conceal a passion whose inner fires are broiling the very soul within I'll take it. I'll take it. Well, what happened to the audition happened to the show out here. And I resigned after 13 weeks. It went on another 13 weeks, but the ratings kept dropping, dropping. The main reason, one of the main reasons, was not only the changes that Orson kept, he'd get great ideas. They were great. This man was a genius. There's no question about that. He was the best read man I have ever known. Orson could read six, eight, ten books a week and discuss any part of any one of them. But whereas in the old days the announcer of a show would come out in the beginning and warm up the audience with a few stale jokes and instructions to watch the applause signs and so on, Orson decided to do a magic bit. He was an amateur magician and a very good one. So the following week, uh, the audience was always called very early, Orson did about 10 minutes of magic, which was great, fine, got a big hand from the audience, show went on as usual. The next week, he did about 20 minutes of it. And no, I kid you not, he finally ended up doing a full 45 minutes. And by that time, the audience was wrung out completely, and they couldn't respond to the best comedian in the world who was a guest on the show, you see. It, it just wore him out, and it was kind of too bad. But as I say, the man was a genius. There's no question about it. Look, girls, it's ridiculous anyway, anyone feeling this way about me. I uh, just... Oh, you, you send us wealthy. He's a killer! You see, I wasn't lying. Now go on, say something romantic. Say something romantic, like, uh, like I adore you. <laughs> For more information on this portion of Orson Welles' career, tune into Breaking Walls, episode 104. Thanks. Although Johnstone left Welles a show, he continued to work on many NBC and CBS programs into the 1950s. Oh, I did throw, Frank Stanton was president of CBS. I did throw him out of the studio one time during rehearsal, not knowing who he was. We, we had, an, had an interesting uh, opening for the show. The engineer, Irving Reese, had hooked up a series of microphones in some mysterious fashion, in such fashion that you could hear a pin drop anywhere in the studio. It would sound like a The announcer said Buck Rogers in the 25th century, and this, gave, this hookup was what gave a, an echo effect that made it sound as though the voice was coming from outer space. And we were in the rehearsal one day when uh, I cued whoever it was, the announcer, and just as he opened his mouth, the studio door with a terrific swoosh that almost deafened me because of the high gain in my earphones. And I took them off, walked out to the guy and said, don't you know any better than to walk into a radio studio during a rehearsal? I was polite but very forceful and only learned later that it was Frank Stanton, president of CBS.
Hello? Oh, John Gassman? Yes, sir. I'm returning your call to Art Linkletter. Oh, hello there. How are you? I understand that you want to talk about taping something on early radio days? Yeah, as part of our convention, we're going to do a panel on audience participation shows. And yeah. we, we've got Urban Atkins and Bob Dwan, and I figured the next best thing to having you here would be uh, a little tape that we could play at the convention. Yeah, what kind of a tape? Well, it have to be audio. Yeah, and how uh, do you do it? How do you propose doing it? I have a phone patch on the phone. I could just record it over the phone. Oh, fine. And play it. Yeah. I can do that whenever you uh, have the time to do a couple of minutes. Well, what about right now? Lady, are you sure you know where your husband is tonight? We have a lady who doesn't, and you'll meet her later on... People are funny! from Hollywood, John Goodell's production of People Are Funny, brought to you by Forever Yours and Milky Way Candy Bars, two quality bars made famous by Mars. And now here's radio's top master of ceremonies, Art Linkletter. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Hollywood and the People Are Funny show. I think we're going to have a very busy and I hope exciting half hour ahead of you. You're going to hear about the dog who will inherit $1,000 cash. And you kids and parents all over the country, you'll learn how to get Halloween masks for nothing. But right now, Roy Rowan, who's first to help us prove that people are funny in Hollywood? Miss Carol Nervy from Pasadena, California. Meet Art Linkletter. Hello, Miss Nervy. How do you do? As you know, Halloween Tricks and Treats will be with us soon, October 31st. Your trick on this program will be along in a minute. But right now, here's a treat. A big 24-bar box of that dark chocolate favorite forever yours. Thank you. Now, you're a single girl. Yes. And your first name is? Carol. What do you do, Carol? I'm an x-ray technician, registered. By late 1953, with radio audiences waning, People Are Funny was the most heard evening show on the air with a rating of 8.4. I don't think so. Produced by John Goodell, hosted by Art Linkletter, and announced by Roy Rowan. It aired on CBS Tuesdays at 8 p.m. for Mars Candy. Tonight, we really need a married woman. How much of the People Are Funny and House Party shows were actually scripted? Or were they outlined, outlines, perhaps? Or? Just the material I needed, for instance, to know uh, where we were going and what the prizes were going to be and what the real gist of the show was, whether it was uh, sending a person on a wild goose chase somewhere or dressing him up and putting him into a situation or fighting a fight in the audience between an actor and then getting witnesses who were seated around there at random and what they saw and what really happened. Whatever it was, I just had the uh, outline and we'd talk it through and since I was also a writer, an associate producer on the show. I knew the show thoroughly by the time I walked out there. Yeah, and you don't know what your husband looks like, do you? No, not now. <laughs> <laughs> well, it doesn't make any difference because, Mrs. Nerby, you don't have any husband now. People Are Funny nosed out the number two show on the air, the Jack Benny program. Lucky Strike program starring Jack Benny with Mary Livingston, Rochester, Dennis Day, Bob Crosby, and yours truly, Don Wood. Ladies and gentlemen, tonight Jack Benny does his television show with his special guests, Irene Dunn, Vincent Price, and Gregory Ratoff. But first... Let's go out to Jack's house in Beverly Hills. 
our little star has decided to spend a couple of weeks in Palm Springs. So just as soon as he finishes breakfast, he's going to start packing. Ah, that was a good breakfast. How about a little more coffee, Rochester? No, thanks. I had enough. <laughs> I meant me. Oh, oh! Yes, oh, oh. Here you are. On second thought, Rochester, I don't think I want any more. And anyway, it's about time we started packing. Yes, sir. And Rochester, not a word about our going to Palm Springs in front of Polly. You know how upset that parrot gets when she knows we're going away and not taking her with us. Yeah. Let's go in the other room and get started. <coughs> oh, hello, Polly. <coughs> hello, hello. <coughs> well, boss, I better get out the bag and... <coughs> bag? Rochester. Huh? Oh, 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 yes, yes. I'm going to get out the bag and put it in the vacuum cleaner and uh, uh, clean up your room. Oh, yes, yes. The bag for the vacuum cleaner. And when the bag is full, we can start for P-A-L-M-S-P-R-I-N-G-S. P-A-L-M-S-P-R-I-N-G-S. Vacuum cleaner. <laughs> that's right, Polly. That spells vacuum cleaner. Come on, Rochester. We better go in my room and, and start packing. Huh? Yes, sir. I'm sorry, Polly, but you can't come in the room with us. <laughs> all right, all right. Don't get excited. <laughs> Rochester, Polly doesn't want to be left alone. We better take her to my room, too. But, boy, she'll see us take your suits out of the closet and your shirts out of the drawers. She'll just think we're straightening up the room. Go ahead, bring her in. Okay, come on, Polly. <laughs> bring her in, bring her in. <laughs> <laughs> now, Rochester... Sir, take my blue suit, my gray suit, my tweed out of the closet. Huh? But, boss, a tweed suit is much too heavy for P-A-L-M-S-P-R-I-N-G-S. P-A-L-M-S-P-R-I-N-G-S. Vacuum cleaner. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, never mind the tweed. Uh, by the way, boss, are you going to stay at the same place you did last time? Certainly. Then I better keep these things together. Bathrobe, slippers, and flashlight. <laughs> Rochester, it's inside now. Airing in his familiar Sundays at 7 p.m. Eastern time slot. In 1953-54, Benny had a radio rating of 8.2 and a TV rating of 33.3. They don't have any more places like that in P-A-L-M-S-P-R-I-N-G-S. P-A-L-M-S-P-R-I-N-G-S. Vacuum cleaner. Well, Rochester, I guess we got everything I'll need. I'll get the phone. I'll take Polly with me. Come on, Polly. Daddy has to answer the phone. Carnation Evaporated Milk presents a star, Lon McAllister, on Stars Over Hollywood. From the train window, I watched the sign Martin Falls slide by. I was leaving everything I loved. The quiet streets, the big shade trees, and the wide lawns. I was leaving it all because of a girl. From Hollywood, California, where the world's favorite stars live and work, the world's favorite evaporated milk brings you Stars Over Hollywood. Each week, Carnation presents another famous name for motion pictures, television, and radio. Such distinguished performers as John Lund, Arlene Dahl, Wendell Corey. Today's star, Lon McAllister, 
may currently be seen in Combat Squad, the Columbia Pictures release. Today's story, With All My Heart, was transcribed in Hollywood for Carnation, the milk from contented cows. Meanwhile, the weekend afternoon's top program was Stars Over Hollywood. It aired on CBS Saturdays at 12.30 p.m. Eastern Time and pulled in a rating of 5.5 for sponsor Carnation Evaporated Milk. Carnation. Carnation for cooking. Carnation for coffee. Carnation for baby feeding. And now, Act One of With All My Heart, starring Lon McAllister in the role of Pete Wilson. Curtain going up. New York, the city millions dream about. The glittering, magnificent giant, never silent, never still, never dark. The roaring traffic, Fifth Avenue shops, theater marquees, rushing crowds. The city millions dream about. But to Peter Wilson, standing on a dusty railroad platform a thousand miles away, it's the last place he wants to go. Honestly, Peter, you look as though you were going to a funeral instead of New York. Look, Faye, we've hashed this over a hundred times. It's what you want me to do, so let's not talk about it anymore. But I want you to be glad you're going, too. Well, I'm not, but as long as you're happy... Darling, just think. After you found a job, a really good one, and an apartment, well, then we'll be married. Oh, Pete, won't that be wonderful? Married. You and I. Faye, honey. But... If I went in with Dad here in the store, why, in just a few months, we could be married... Waste all of that wonderful college education in a sporting goods store? It seemed that no matter how much love there was for the medium of radio, television had moved in and taken over. You know I do. Say it. But I do. Well, say it. I love you, Faye. Go on. Perhaps because of the people involved, The Six Shooter with Jimmy Stewart was a real gratifying show to do. We did one episode on Hollywood Star Playhouse. Frank Burt wrote the script. Jimmy Stewart fit the part perfectly. And we simply did it as one number on the series. In 1952, when Jack Johnstone was directing the American Bakers-sponsored Hollywood star Playhouse, Frank Burt wrote a story called The Six Shooter. It featured a reluctantly famous gunfighter named Britt Ponsett. The duo felt Jimmy Stewart, who'd starred in westerns like Winchester 73, Broken Arrow, and Bend in the River, would be perfect. The episode featuring Stewart premiered on April 13, 1952. Jimmy Stewart with a welcome to the Hollywood Star Playhouse, brought to you by the Bakers of America.
Star Playhouse. 30 minutes of mystery, thrills, drama by Hollywood's finest writers featuring Hollywood's top stars. Brought to you by the Bakers of America through the cooperation of your baker. Hello there, this is Wendell Niles. In a moment, we'll bring you Act One of today's transcribed story, The Six Shooter, starring Mr. James Stewart. Friends, depend on your baker to help you serve better meals through bakery foods. Whether he's the baker in your bake shop, the baker who supplies your grocer, or the baker who calls at your door, your baker is the man who provides so many of the good foods that mean mealtime satisfaction for you and your family. Because almost every day of the year, very likely every meal of the day, you enjoy something that a baker makes. So for variety, convenience, economy, for nutritious good eating, count on your baker to help you serve better meals through bakery foods. And now, Act One of The Six Shooter, starring Mr. James Stewart. stopped, but the wind still carried slivers of moisture that cut into the boy's face as he rode along the edge of the creek. When he saw the yellow light from the back of the office, he pulled up and slid out of the saddle. Then he tied a wet bandana under his eyes and walked to the door. Way up, both of you. And stay away from that shotgun. Now, now, look here. You, you. get over to the safe. Better hurry up, mister. All right, now open it. I said to open it. All right, toss me that sack. Okay. Thanks a lot. You, you. Now. You rotten little... I hadn't figured on going through Clay City. It was an hour out of my way, and I was already a day late to the Jefferson Ranch where I'd signed on for the roundup. But when Scar started limping from a loose shoe, didn't have no choice. We had to head for the nearest blacksmith shop, so we turned north. losing a show. Well, let's have a look. All right, raise it up, fella. Come on, come on, boy. Yeah, it's split, mister. He needs a new one. Okay, boy. Can you take care of it? Oh, sure. Bring him over here. Hey, uh, what happened to Red, fella used to own this shop? Went to Nevada chasing silver. I bought him out. Oh, yeah, you, you don't look very much like a blacksmith. Huh? Oh, I'm stronger than I look. Heavier, too. 
What do you think I weigh, mister? Oh, I don't know. Go on, go on. Take a guess. 120? 30? Mm, well, no more than that. You a betting man, mister? Well, sometimes. Well, I say I weigh over 130. If I don't, you get the new shoe for nothing. If I do, you pay me double. What do you say? Well, you got a set of scales? Don't need no scales. What do you say, mister? Is it a bet? <laughs> well, don't seem to be no way of proving it. Oh, all you got to do is lift me up. You look like a man who can judge weight. What do you say? Okay, all right, it's a bet. All right, mister, just heist me. If you don't think I weigh more than 130, the shoe is free. <laughs> all right, I, I never tried to judge a man's weight before, but all right. There, there we go. <laughs> well? Well, I'll be dull. Huh? I'm packed solid, mister, real solid. Well, you're packed tighter than a steer. Hey, you must weigh 150 pounds. Yeah, you see, you see, what did I tell you? 158. <laughs> the horseshoe's gonna cost you money, mister, but you ain't the only one. Ever since I bought the shop, there ain't been a stranger come through Clay City but what he paid double for his first horseshoe. <laughs> you ain't sore, mister. No, no, that was a fair bet. Sure it was. I told you I was heavier than I looked. That's what folks call me, Heavy Norton. My real name's George, but everybody calls me Heavy. Hey, what's your name, mister? Ponsett. Britt Ponsett. Fella, they call the Six Shooter? Well, doggone it. I've heard about you, mister. I've sure heard about you. <laughs> oh, would have recognized you if I'd have noticed your gun. Sure is fancy, ain't it? Hey, do you mind, uh... Showing it to me? No, no. Here, catch. Hey, real fancy. Just like Sheriff Schofield said. He says he's seen you fire six shots with it while Whitey Jackson was getting off his first bullet. That time down at Eagle. Well, the sheriff kind of likes to build up a story. Oh, he swears it's the truth. Here's your gun, Mr. Ponsett. Thanks. Sure, sure. You was mighty quick in getting into Clay City. Uh, how'd you hear about it so fast? Hmm. Well, to hear about what? A holdup at the Fargo station last night. Ain't that why you come? Nope. No. I was headed past town. I turned off because Scar got that loose shoe. Well, now, ain't that a coincidence? Fellow holds up the Fargo office, kills one man, maybe two, gets away at $5,000, and 12 hours later, you ride into town. Well, they got any idea who did it? Nope, not a single solitary one, from, from what I hear. Like I say, the deputy agent was dead when they found him. Other fella, Fred Wilmer, a friend of his, got shot up pretty bad. Ain't done no talking yet. Doc says maybe he never will. Will Sheriff Schofield take out a posse? Nope, ain't nobody to go. Most of the men signed up for the Jefferson Roundup. Left town day before yesterday. Here the Jefferson Ranch paying good money this year. Yeah, yeah. You uh, seen the sheriff this morning? No, not lately. It might be over to his office. Uh, I think I'll walk down that way while you're fixing up Scar. Sure, sure, Mr. Ponsett. That's a darn good idea. Sheriff Schofield will be real glad to see you. A couple of doors this side of the sheriff's office, I saw the Wells Fargo sign nailed up next to a window. The place wasn't locked, so I went inside. The chairs was upset, and there was some damp stains on the floor. The cast iron safe against the wall was standing wide open, so I kicked it shut. Went out in the back stoop. There was some more blood on the steps, and then just red mud. Right at the edge, I saw the hoof prints. They trailed off along the side of the creek. Whoever made them headed west. 
The horse had been wearing one shoe different from the other three. A, a, a sharp rock must have cut into it sometime or another. Not enough to split it, you understand, just enough so that the print left a jagged line, like, so like fancy handwriting. Then it was decided, later, to do a series based on the same character. That's really all there was to it. I directed the Hollywood Star Playhouse, so of course I directed the series then later. And Jim was a wonderful person to work with. Stewart loved the role, but he was too busy with films to do anything at the moment. A little over a year later, he was wrapping production on The Naked Spur. Stewart and NBC were again interested in The Six Shooter. An audition record was cut on July 15, 1953. It used the same script as The Hollywood Star Playhouse, minus the introduction with the robbery. At the act break, Stewart spoke to his potential advertising audience. That ends the first act of The Six Shooter, folks. Hope you're enjoying the show. Before we get on with it, I'd like to tell you a little bit about how I happen to be doing this program. I've uh, been lucky enough to do quite a bit of radio acting before, but I've never had a program of my own. The right thing just didn't seem to come along, at least not until The Six Shooter. You see, I've made several stories of this kind for pictures, that is, honest, legitimate stories of the West, and... I hope that this series can offer the same type of enjoyment with the same integrity. We think it's the sort of program the whole family will enjoy, and we think that the character of Britt Ponset typifies some of the greatness that built America. We'd be pleased if you agreed with us. And now, Act Two of The Six Shooter, starring Jimmy Stewart. Sheriff Schofield was sitting on Fred Wilmer's porch swing when I got there. The doc was inside with Fred, so I squatted down on the stoop and waited. About half an hour, the doc came out and told us we could go inside and see Fred. Fred was lying on a cot, breathing hard. Afterwards, Stewart finished Thunder Bay, which wrapped production in late summer. While he was on set, he received word. The Six Shooter had been greenlit by NBC. The show was to debut on September 20th, 1953. Walked over to the door. Yeah. Looked at us for a minute. 
Hey, Jake, how much further we got to go? I'm about wasted away to nothing with hunger. Howdy, Sheriff. Wait, Jake, Dad. Some blood on the bench, Mr. Sutcliffe. Blood? I know in my heart that he's innocent, and that someone is framing him for murder and these payroll robberies. It's Western audio drama at its finest. I got word from my contact at the bank in Prickly Pear that the payroll's going to be released Thursday. Slim Sutcliffe, he's the owner of the D-Bar D, will have at least three men on that job. Return with us to Pioneer Days in the wild and woolly Arizona Territory. The story of a man whose mission was to tame the Old West. Jake Dimes, Range Detective. Subscribe to Narada Radio Company at iTunes and all fine podcast providers. We're just about to... Jake, the sun's going down. Are you going to kiss her or ain't you? Huh? You did a lot of Lux Radio theaters and stuff, didn't you? Oh, yes. I used to love radio, and I still do. But in those days, radio was so important, and the movies uh, used, for instance, Lux Radio Theater. Lots of times they would dramatize an upcoming movie on Lux Radio Theater, just sort of almost doing a preview of the movie. And I've done a, an awful lot of awful lot of radio. I had a radio series that turned into the six shooter. When the six shooter launched on September twentieth with Jenny. Coleman Heaters was the sponsor. They were also sponsoring the Eddie Cantor Show and Barry Craig, confidential investigator. Coleman's fall 1953 national ad campaign promoted their latest Coleman space heaters. It was combined with a 32-piece set of Libby glassware in a Western pattern. However, by October 18th, NBC was sustaining production. Their sales team went looking for a new sponsor. Fittingly, the December 6, 1953 episode was called a pressing engagement. In a moment, you'll hear James Stewart as the six shooter, just one of the many fine programs brought to you Sundays on NBC. Later this evening, listen to the NBC Star Playhouse with one of your favorite stars. Hear Stroke of Fate and the story of what might have happened if fate had reversed historical facts. And be sure to keep tuned for the dramatic story of Last Man Out. It's a wonderful lineup of great programs, all of them heard only on NBC. James Stewart as The Six Shooter. The man in the saddle is angular and long-legged. His skin is sun-dyed brown. The gun in his holster is gray steel and rainbow mother of pearl. Its handle unmarked. People call them both the six-shooter. The NBC Radio Network presents James Stewart as 
The Six Shooter, a transcribed series of radio dramas based on the life of Britt Ponsett, the Texas plainsman who wandered through the Western territories, leaving behind a trail of still-remembered legends. About the last place I expected to be that Tuesday was the town of Powder Creek. The Double G Ranch where I'd been working was clear on the other side of the territory, neither oh, about 200 miles away. But when Sam Griffith, he's the owner of the Double G, when Sam got a chance to buy off Forrest Trench Herd, he sent me over to close the deal. So the next thing I knew, I was walking down the main street on my way to the bank where I was supposed to meet Trent. Gee, well, it sure was a nice day. Kind of Indian summer-like. A lot warmer than it had a right to be in October. The sun had fooled the maple trees into thinking it was spring. A couple of them beside the Civil War cannon in the square were even starting to bud. The two fellas sitting underneath it playing checkers in their shirt sleeves, eh? Well, it looked like the sun had fooled them, too. <laughs> Howdy. Just a minute, mister. Just a minute till I make this move. There. That ought to hold you, Jonah. Yeah. Now, uh, what was it you wanted, mister? Oh, I didn't want anything. I just said howdy, that's all. Oh, howdy. Well, speak to the man, Jonah. He spoke to us. It's my move now. I'll do my talking afterwards. Yeah. Howdy. Oh, it's a nice day. Yeah. Well, so long. Uh, hold up there a minute, son. Hmm? Hey, see that gun of his, John? Yep. You, uh, you ain't Brett Ponsett, the six-shooter. My name's Ponsett, yeah. You hear that, Jonah? He's Brett Ponsett. Yep. And we was kind of wondering when you was going to show up, Mr. Ponsett. Been expecting you for the last month or so. What's that? Yeah, when you got to jump, you got to take it. That's the rule. All right, all right, yep. Jonah. All right, I know the rule. Well, we'll take it then, take it. All right. Yeah. <laughs> there. You satisfied? You, you, you said something about expecting oh, why, me. Why, sure. Go... Ever since we heard the news, congratulations. Why? He said congratulations. Now let's get on with the game. All right. Uh, sure moving. Yeah, how in thunder should I know all this chattering going on? Well, I don't like to keep you interrupting, but I wonder if you would mind explaining just what you meant by... by... Jonah's trying to think. Yeah, I know, but what I... I don't what want I... him to claim I beat him because we kept him from concentrating. No, 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 no. Of course not. No, no. I... I... Well, I knew that the Trent cattle would turn out to be good stock. The Double G was lucky to be buying them. But since they weren't going to belong to me, I couldn't see why congratulations were in order. Unless folks in Powder Creek had heard wrong, unless they thought I was outfitting a ranch of my own. And I started to explain things to the fellows playing checkers, but they shushed me again, good, good and loud this time. So I gave up and went on town toward the bank. I was just passing by the newspaper office when I bumped into Quint Todd. He was editor of the Powder Creek Press, a weekly newspaper. Matter of fact, he was more than just an editor. Quint's paused, retired in the last six or seven years, and he was putting out the paper practically single-handed. Good afternoon, Quint. Huh? Oh, it's you, Ponsett. So you finally got here, huh? Well, I'm here, if that's what you mean. I didn't realize folks were so anxious about me. 
Some of us are anxious, maybe. Some of us ain't. Ah. Uh-huh. What, are you, you upset about something, Quint? Why should I be upset? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. The things are all right, aren't they? I mean, with the paper. Paper's fine. I'll save you the next issue so you can see your name in print. See my... Well, I sure can't think any reason why you'd be writing about me. It's customary, ain't it? What? It's customary to write about the groom. The groom? The what? what? I'm busy now, Ponson. I got a story to run down. Oh, Quint, no, well, listen to me. I hope you'll me. be real happy. Both of you. No, but Quint, I... Hey, for Pete's sake, Quinn, wait, Quinn! Well, he'd lost his senses. That's the only explanation of that. He'd Quinn taught it, just plain lost his senses. That me being a groom, me. And who in the Sam Hill did he think I was going to marry? How? I, I hadn't even been keeping company. Not that I have anything against marriage. You understand? I. Like people say, it's an institution, a, a noble institution. Why, some of my best friends are married. And I, I suppose someday, not right away, of course, not very soon, but someday, maybe I'll... Well, I... Hey, hello, Britt. I was on my way to meet you. Huh? Huh? What's the matter? You look like you just fell off a bronc. Oh, hello, Trent. I uh, guess I was kind of preoccupied. I was thinking about something. I... <laughs> I reckon we shouldn't expect you to have all your faculties in good working order. <laughs> Not at a time like this, huh? Huh? What? <laughs> oh, sure was a surprise. Never thought I'd see the day when some woman would put a saddle on you. <laughs> what? <laughs> well, we better get over to the bank. I told Mr. Fredericks we'd be there uh, by three about... Uh, he's drawing up the papers. Sure, sure. Uh, uh, Trent. Yeah? Now, about me getting married, the fact of the matter is, I... Oh, Fred, you know I was just joshing with that saddle tall. Oh, yeah. Oh, I, I well, know, to tell I know. The truth, but... It's high time you did put down some roots. Maybe so. Maybe yes, so, Trent. Yes, sir, you I... just wait till you've got a family of your own. Why, you'll be a different man. Oh, that's possible. That's possible, Trent. Yeah, but just where did everybody get the notion that I was almost well, ready to... <laughs> you didn't think you could keep it a secret, did a you? A secret? <laughs> well, you ought to know Minnie better than that. Minnie? <laughs> yeah, that's who told me. Well, of course, there'd been rumors going around for several weeks, but until I heard it from Minnie herself... Oh, wait, wait, hold on here. You mean Minnie Flint? Well, who else would I mean? It's her niece you're marrying, ain't it? <laughs> acting so strange about uh, look, uh, look, now, I just want to get this straight. Minnie Flint told you I was marrying her niece? Well, she told everybody. I say. Well, now, Britt, I, I know how a man feels when he's getting ready to jump overboard. <laughs> I felt the same way myself, sort of awkward and embarrassed. Well, be that as <laughs> you it may. folks didn't know about it so they wouldn't poke fun the way they always do. Ah, <laughs> uh, but you can't blame Minnie for spreading the news. Well, I sure do blame her. Well, now, Britt, Minnie's been like a mother to Helen, raised her since she was a baby. Well, Helen ain't never had no folks of her own. I know that. I know that. Well, then, you shouldn't mind Minnie being proud. Why shouldn't she do a little bragging, huh? Well, of course. Oh, uh, the women folks around here seem to think you're quite a catch. Oh, now, listen, Diane. Now, Trent, well, let me tell you something. Here's the bank. I suppose that you'll want to get this business done with pronto so you can get straight over to Minnie's place, huh, Britt? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I w- would like to get over to Minnie's. Among those featured in this cast were Bill Johnstone and Herb Vigran, 
In late 1953, Vigran was finding work in TV. You see, most of us who had done all that radio in the early days of television, all of the producers and directors and writers of early TV were the uh, radio writers and producers mm -hmm. and directors. So I went right into I Love Lucy, Jess Oppenheimer was the producer, Madeline Martin and Bob Carroll were the mm -hmm. writers. They had written My Favorite Husband, which was a show that Lucy had done, mm -hmm. The E. Varden Show, the same guy who's directing that, who was directed an E. E. Varden show on, on you know. So all of those things, and so, I uh, yes, I made a very fortunate transition. I was one of the busiest guys in the early television days. Also in the cast was Virginia Gregg. On most of those shows, I doubled other mm -hmm. parts, too, maybe if an old charwoman came in or something, I'd do those. Did you often uh, use an alternate voice then on these mm -hmm. shows? Uh -huh. mm -hmm. And give us a charwoman's voice? Now? Sure. Oh, well, you'd have to hand me a script and say, here, do her. Take this bucket. <laughs> yeah. And what do you want her in? Japanese? Swedish? Oh, you do German, the dialects, Jewish. Uh, dialects and, uh, and everything. Oh, yeah. Uh -huh. Just a minute, I'm coming. <gasps> Red. You mind if I command many? Why, uh, well... Excuse me. Thanks. It's sure nice to see you, Brett. I didn't have any idea you were in Powder Creek. I didn't have any idea at all. Uh-huh. You're, uh, you're just passing through, ain't you? You're not staying. Well, uh, some folks seem to think I am. I at least long enough to get married. Oh, you've heard. Well, so is everybody else, far as I can tell. Your announcement of my engagement seems to have blanketed the whole town. Now, Britt, I can explain. Well, that's why I'm here. Why don't you just sit down over there on the sofa? I've got some oatmeal cookies out in the kitchen. I just made them this morning. Many? Yes. You just uh, can forget about the cookies. I really don't have much of an appetite. Oh. Well. I'm waiting, men. Well, uh, you see, Britt, I only did it for Helen. Now, she's a fine girl, and, well, I, I wanted to help her out. Oh. On account of Quint, uh, Quint Todd. They've been going together for nearly six years now, but he just never seemed to get around to asking her to marry him. Well, he must have his reasons. A man usually does. Oh, it's because of his father. You see, Quint's been taking care of old man Todd ever since he retired. And it must cost money, him being so sickly all the time. Uh-huh. But Quint could have married her. Helen don't expect a lot of fancy clothes in a fine house. She's the practical type. Uh, I, just, just what has this got to do with me? Uh... Well, I, I had an idea. I thought if maybe there was somebody else, if Quint believed Helen was interested in another man, well... Maybe he'd come to his senses and take the bull by the horns and marry her himself. I see. You've been sort of using me as a decoy. Is that uh, the idea? I knew you was working for the double G. It didn't seem likely you'd be showing up in these parts. Uh, not for the time being, anyhow. And afterward, well, after Quentin and Helen tied the knot, then it wouldn't matter. Well, you ought to be ashamed of yourself, men. Both you and Helen. You don't think she knew about it. She didn't? Of course not. I didn't dare tell her. 
Why, she'd have never stood for it. Well, then how on earth did you manage to convince her that I was, uh, that I was uh, interested? I've got a sister living over in Black Mountain. Uh, that's not far from the double G. No, but what I mean is, how did you ever... Well, I hmm? sent her some letters and asked her to post them for me. They were... Uh, they was love letters, Brett. I sort of changed my handwriting and uh, signed your name. Manny Flint. Uh, I guess you might as well know the rest, too. Uh, When Helen answered them, uh, when she wrote back to you, well, I kind of saw to it that her answers never got mailed. Well, I just don't know what to say. Oh, I never dreamed it'd go this far, Britt. I was sure Quint would start talking serious when he first found out that you and Helen were corresponding, but he didn't. And then, well, I thought maybe if you're... Letters got a little more uh, sincere. Uh, well, maybe that would make him jealous. I left him around where he couldn't help seeing them whenever he come calling. You didn't actually propose in my name. Oh no, well. Brett. Well, uh, n- not in so many words, but uh, reading between the lines. Well, that's how Helen took it. She wrote you her answer two weeks ago. She wrote yes. What? Your uh, your letters were mighty convincing. Well, then you better start figuring out some way of unconvincing her. Well, I don't know. Maybe... Look, look men, now, Helen's got to know the truth. And if you won't do it, well, I'll just have to tell her all about it myself. Yes, because... Oh! Town, I guess maybe he's... Oh, uh, Britt. Why, are you here already? Hello, Helen. Oh, my goodness... Sure is good to see you, Britt. You're, you're looking fine. I saw you, Ellen. I saw you. Uh, I, I wish I'd known you were coming. I wouldn't have been out doing the market. No, it didn't matter. It didn't matter. Oh, Britt, I just got to tell you. Maybe I shouldn't say it right out like this, but... Well, ever since I was a little girl, I've looked up to you so. Why, it just seemed to me you were the finest man that ever came through Powder Creek. Now, now, Helen... <laughs> Of course, I, I never guessed that someday, well, that you and I... Oh, Britt, I'm so happy about it. Excited and happy. I just hope you're as pleased as I am. Are you, Britt? Uh, uh, sh- uh, sure, uh, Helen. Uh, sh- sure. return to James Stewart as the six-shooter in just a moment. Every man and woman in the armed forces will tell you the only call that takes precedence over mess is mail call. And when a letter is more important to a hungry G.I. than food, you know it means something. And the truce in Korea is no reason why we should stop writing letters to our men and women in service, whether in U.S. camps or overseas. Mail from home is just as important now as it ever was. Oh, yes, and be sure to mail your soldier's Christmas packages this week. In that way, you'll be sure he'll receive them in time to make his Christmas away from home a little more cheerful. (laughs) 
Now, Act Two of The Six Shooter, starring James Stewart as Britt Ponsett. There just wasn't anything else to say. There just wasn't. I couldn't tell Helen that I'd never really thought about her in a Marian way. And besides, many, she caused all the trouble. It was, his, it was her place to set things right. Min didn't open her mouth. No, she just stood there staring at us through her bifocals, real pleased with herself. Well, the next thing that happened was Helen invited me to supper. Oh, boy, I sure didn't want to accept. All I wanted to do was just get out of the house and get out of Powder Creek, too, but... But what I wanted to do and what I did were two different things. I went back to the hotel where I was stopping, changed my shirt, and I rode out to Minnie's again. I guess Britt doesn't like my cooking at Minnie's. Hardly eating a thing. Oh, it's not that, Helen. Everything is fine. I had a pretty big dinner at noon, and it kind of stayed with me. More coffee, Britt. No, no thanks, man. You'll have to tell me your favorite foods, Britt, so I'll know what to fix after... I, uh, well, I sort of like most everything. Apple pie, I bet. Most men like apple pie. Why, whenever Quentin and I went up... Oh. Speaking of Quentin, I ran into him today. I'd just as soon not discuss him. Always, always seemed to me to be an awful nice sort of a fella, Quint. Please, Britt. Oh, 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 sorry. Well, <clears throat> I'll just rid up the table. Oh, here. Here, let me help No, you. no, no. I can manage... Besides, you two have lots of things to talk over. Well, all right. It's a real warm night for this time of year. The moon, too. A harvest moon. Oh? I, I, I hadn't noticed. We ain't taken down the porch swing yet, Britt. Oh, that's all. It... Uh... Might be kind of nice to sit outside for a spell. Well, whatever you say, Helen. Whatever you say. I enjoyed the people in it, too. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of loyalty, camaraderie. Mm -hmm. See, we were together so much. In the beginning, there were, oh, I think, 1,500 members of AFRA, then mm -hmm. AFRA. Uh, they figured about 400, 450 did practically all of the work. Mm -hmm. Of course, that wasn't very many. And we spent a great deal of time together, and that was before the days of tape. Mm -hmm. Or even on tape, lots of times you spent many hours together. But we would have a break. You didn't have long enough to go anywhere. We got to know each other very, very well, and our problems, they mm -hmm. were like family. We'd hear about somebody who was having kind of a rough time, we go to one of the other producers and say, gee, Dick's having a hard time paying his rent. Do you think there's anything for him next week? And they'd get behind him, and he'd be working. So you'd all act as perhaps an agent for someone yeah, else? Yeah, for could. everybody else. It really is a nice family kind of it relationship. Was. It was. We were very close and very loving, mm -hmm. very caring. Usually. How soon in advance would you get a script for you a You never got a script in advance. Didn't get one uh -uh. when they rehearsed it. In the early like days, that. you went in and you had a conference, a story conference, and a, a read-through, mm -hmm. and you'd say, well, I don't think she would say this, or wouldn't it be better if... And you could talk a show over and have a first read-through. Mm -hmm. 
when radio kind of faded out toward the end there, mm -hmm. particularly with Jack. Now, Jack Webb really did have a stock company. He used the same people. And so did Jack Johnstone, pretty much. Mm -hmm. They would say such things as, now, next week you're doing an Irish, and I'd say, I don't do Irish, and they'd say, sure you do. <laughs> and I would get it, and you do Irish. By the 1950s, the Hollywood troupe of radio actors became like a stock company. They appeared in every program and in every genre. In 1953, when the adult Western was prominent, Sam Edwards appeared on both The Six Shooter and Gunsmoke. I know, Sam, you and, and Jeanette worked a lot of Gunsmokes. Oh, yeah. Uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit about some of the people you work with on the show. Well, of course, there was everybody knows Parley Bear, Georgia Ellis. Bill. Howard McNair and uh, you were Conrad. Conrad. No, never you? worked. Fine. No, Jeanette did. Mm -mm. Lillian Byoff. Yes. She worked a number of them. Harry Bartell and Vic Perrin. In fact, Vic wrote one about a baseball game, a baseball mm -hmm. story. Ball game. Uh, and they were written by that wonderful John Kathleen. Meston. Oh, Kathleen Hyde did the Yeah, yeah Kathleen yeah. Hyde. Mm -hmm. Yes. And let's see, I think Herb Ellis worked <clears throat> some of them. Yes. Sure. I'm sure of that. And uh, he had rather a tight little cast. I mean, he had a little stock company there, and mm -hmm. I don't think there are more than a dozen people. Oh, John Danner, of course. Yes, and sure. Virginia Gregg. And Virginia Gregg, yeah. She worked a great many Yeah, Larry Dobkin. Larry Dobkin wrote a... Uh, and Larry yes, Dobkins. Larry Dobkins. There were about a dozen, maybe 15 mm -hmm. people oh, yes. that uh, he used on and nearly every show. Sure. I think I worked about 70% of them. I don't know. But. And, of course, the announcers, they had Roy Rowan, who was yeah. on during the early days, Clancy Cassell, who still lives in San Francisco, and, of course, one of the announcers that hardly anybody's ever heard of He's in the audience, so I had to throw that in. George Walsh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you sure you're not too cold out here? Oh, no. Uh -huh. No, I'm fine. Besides, if I do get chilly, you could sort of... Uh, <clears throat> Helen... Yes, uh, <coughs> Alan, uh, about, about us getting married, uh, we uh, we may not be able to have the wedding right away. Oh? Uh, well, you see, over at the Double G where I'm working, there's no place we could live. Well, you, you wrote me you had a cabin all to yourself. I did. And you said it would fix up real easy, that there'd be plenty of room for both of us. Well, it would. It would have fixed up easy, Helen. But last week, there was a kind of a fire, and that cabin just burned right down to the ground. Oh, I see. There's nothing left of it now but just a few ashes. And that's one of the reasons I came over here to Powder Creek to explain about us having to postpone the ceremony, you see. Well, you don't have to stay at the Double G, do you? Yes, I do. Yes, yes, I do. I, I signed up for all of next year. Don't have any choice. So maybe maybe we ought to not be formally promised. I mean, if somebody else came along, I wouldn't blame you not for waiting. Britt, there won't be anybody else. Oh, you never know. You, you never and, know. And, and a year isn't very long to wait. A year isn't long at all. No, no, I guess not. But just in case. Wait a just... minute. I've got an idea. We don't have to wait. Hey, we uh, can be married right away before you go back to the Double G. Then afterward, I can stay on with Aunt Min. 
There'd be times when we could be together, when when you come over to Powder Creek for a week or so, like now. I never thought of that. You... You don't seem very anxious, Britt. From the sound of your letters, I thought you wanted to get married. Right oh, now. sure. Oh, sure. That's... It's just... I... Oh. Oh, well. Well, looks like somebody's riding up this way. Why, it's Quint. Quint Todd. Oh, oh. I'm going in the house, Britt. I don't want to talk to him. Oh, now, well, I, I thought you and Quint used to be pretty good friends. Yeah, that's all we were, just friends. He didn't mean anything to me, not really. Oh, well, you sure start running every time the name's mentioned. I'm you? not running. Oh, all right, I'll stay. Yeah, well, oh, evening, Quint. Hello, Ponsett. Helen. Good evening. You left word at the press office you wanted to see me. I left word? Uh, no, no, he means me, Helen. What? Uh, well, I figured he'd want to get the details on our plans. The paper comes out tomorrow, doesn't it? That's right. Yes, well, I... I just want to tell you you couldn't have come at a better time. You see, we just finished settling things. The ceremony's going to be this week. Haven't decided on a day yet. How's Friday, Helen? Oh, well, yes, yes. The sooner the better. The sooner the better. Friday, then. Church wedding. Oh, of course, of course. I want everybody to come, everybody in town. You better say so in the paper. There won't be time to send out formal invitations. You're invited, too, of course, Quint. I'll try and make it. There won't be much of a honeymoon. I'm heading back for the double G first part of next week. Helen's going to stay here with her aunt. She, she's going to stay in Powder Creek? Well, for the time being, anyway, don't sound like much of a marriage to me. Well, it's not the way we'd prefer it, but of course, you know, you can't always fix things up perfect. You have to take the better with the sweet, you know. Yeah, well, when I get married, I'll have a house for my wife and some money in the bank. There are more important things than houses and money. You never said so before. I never said I wanted a house of my own, did I? Well, no. But I couldn't ask you to move in with me and Pa, the way he's ailing all the time. That was just an excuse. If you loved me, you'd have asked. I did love you. You must have known I did. How was I to know? There's, there's no point in hashing it over now. Good night. Now, now, hold on. Hold on now. Hold on, Quint. Now, just, just, just a minute. Now, I, I want to get this thing straight now. I, I, I could hardly believe my ears just now. You, you said you were in love with Helen? I still am, if you want to know it. Quint. Well, I sure don't like the sound of this. Uh, uh, Helen's engaged to me. How I feel about her doesn't matter. It's how she feels that counts. Oh, but if you're in love with her, now how do I know she's not in love with you? It's pretty plain that she isn't. I don't know. I don't know. You know, being in love usually works both ways, you know. Don't know about this. Well, Helen, what about this now? Britt, you, you know I, I don't care anything about him one way or the other. Now, is that the truth? You talking the truth now? You, we're not starting our marriage on a lie now, are we? Well, maybe I was fond of Quint once, but that was before... Well... You're all over it now. All over it? You're sure? I'm promised to you. Yeah, yeah, but I, uh, I, I wouldn't hold you to that promise. As a matter of fact, I'd insist you break it if I thought there was somebody else. Well, that's mighty generous of you, Britt. But you don't need to worry. Of course, if our marriage didn't go through, I'd be kind of upset. Hurt, maybe. Oh, I wouldn't ever hurt you, Britt. Not for anything. Oh, I'd get over it, Helen. I'd get over it. 
man always does. At least I always have before. Before? Oh, sure, sure. Lots of times. Oh, yes. But you wrote me that I was the only girl you, you ever... Oh, oh well, I, I... To tell you the truth, I, I, what I meant was that uh, you were the only girl I'd ever been engaged to, you see. That, oh. That's what I meant. <laughs> looks to me like the choice is up to you, Helen. Yes, yes, I... I think that's the way I see it, too. If you're smart, you'll choose Ponset. I sure haven't got anything to offer you. Just a small-town newspaper that wouldn't even give us a decent living. Oh, now, stop talking yourself down, Quint. Now, the Powder Creek Press is one of the finest weeklies in this part of the country. Now, you know that. Well, Britt, he's a six-shooter. Why, he's practically famous. All I am is a cowpoke. I'm just an old cowpoke. I don't even know whether I'm going to have a job from year to year. Well, just just a, the same. Just I an old cop. Any couple. girl in the territory would be pleased. Oh, be quiet, both of you. I think neither one of you wants me. I know who you are and what you are. And I know which one I'm... Well, which one I... Britt. Uh-huh. You're getting a fine man, Helen. Quint, I told you to be quiet. Britt. I'm sorry. I hope you won't think that I'm, I'm fickle or, or don't know my own mind. But, well, you... You are the six-shooter. You don't really need a wife. Helen, you don't mean you're going to take me. And Quint... Well, he needs somebody to look after him. I've seen that house of his. Well, I'll bet the place hasn't had a good spring house cleaning for the last four years. As for Quint's father, he's a nice old man. And with a woman to look after him, maybe he won't be so sickly all the time. Well, you still haven't said that you love Quint. Why? Oh, I, I guess I've been in love with him ever since. You won't think too badly of me, Britt. No, no. No, I... It's kind of a blow, I guess. But like I said, it'll take a little while to get over it, and I... I'll manage somehow. I'll, uh, uh, I'll manage. Well, I left Quint and Helen standing out there on the porch. I went inside to get my hat. Minnie was hovering by the front window. And when she saw me, she shut it real quick and tried to appear innocent. Well... It looks like your scheme finally worked out, man. My scheme? Seems to me it was more yours than mine. Well, what, what are you talking about? You know very well that you're asking Quint over here tonight was what brought things to a head. Well, I, I just wanted to make certain he had all the facts about our wedding, that's all. So that the story in the paper would be accurate. Oh, sure, Brett, sure, I know. <sighs> Poor Quint. What? Well, I guess he deserves it after making her wait all this time. Well, what do you mean, Minnie? Well, I was just thinking. He's going to have to toe the line real close, and he's not going to win many family arguments, neither. Well, I don't see why well, not. Well, I'll tell you why not. Every time Helen has trouble with him, all she'll say is, don't forget I could have married the six-shooter, but I gave him up for you. And Quint will just have to sit there and take it, no matter how often she says it. Oh, now, man, you know Well, Quint and Helen were married the following Sunday. I stayed over for the wedding. Matter of fact, I was best man. Both of them insisted on that. 
But I didn't enjoy the ceremony very much. I, uh, I kept thinking that, you know, th that it could have been me standing there saying the I do's. And, gee whiz, I sure was a close call. The Six Shooter is an NBC Radio Network production in association with Review Productions. It is based on a character created by Frank Burt, and the transcribed story is written by him. Mr. Stewart may currently be seen in the Universal International picture, The Glenn Miller Story. Others in the cast were Barbara Eiler, Virginia Gregg, Bill Johnstone, Sam Edwards, and Herb Viker. Special music for this program was by Basil Adler. And the entire production is under the direction of Jack Johnstone. All characters and incidents were fictitious, and any resemblance to actual characters or incidents is purely coincidental. This is Hal Gibney speaking. Tonight here, Angela Lansbury in the NBC Star Playhouse on the NBC Radio Network. Are you new to old-time radio? A hardcore fan? Curious, but don't know where to start? Try the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, a podcast dedicated to the great horror, crime, and suspense shows from the golden age of radio, including tales from Suspense, Lights Out, Quiet Please, The Shadow, and more. Each episode features a classic or maybe not-so-classic story from the old-time radio vault, complete with historical notes and trivia. At the end of each podcast, your mysterious old hosts, Tim, Joshua, and Eric, discuss the merits of the story and decide whether or not it stands the test of time, balancing insight and humor to make you think harder about what made these old shows so great, even when they aren't so great. The Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society is available everywhere you get your podcasts, as long as you get your podcast from iTunes or Podbean. For more information about the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, or to download episodes directly, visit ghoulishdelights.com. And now back to Breaking Walls. Look out! Radio is such a clean business compared to the rest of show business. There were talented people in radio who got along on their talent, not because they were related to somebody, not because they had something on somebody, not because they could knife somebody in the back. It was the clean end of show business. Elia Kazan, I used to have him on Crime Doctor, I guess it was, quite frequently, and we'd walk from CBS to Grand Central Station after the show, after the broadcast. And Gadget said more than once that to him, good radio was far more difficult than any of the other media. Now, he'd been born and brought up in a 
behind the scenes in the theater, was not only an accomplished actor, but a good director too. But he felt that partly because of the limitations of rehearsal, it took more talent to do radio well than any of the other media. The show's theme was provided by Basil Adlam, conjuring up the wandering plainsman. I can tell you the title of the theme on the Jimmy Stewart show, which in spite of using specially recorded music for it, the theme was Highland Lament. Stewart was a superb radio actor. His narrator and whisper provided a contrast to the often lighthearted nature of many scripts. Jimmy Stewart fit this part so well, and Frank Burt knew him well enough to write for him. And also, Jim loved to do the show. He said more than once that he enjoyed doing it more than anything else he'd ever done in his professional career, which was kind of nice. By December, the show's critical acclaim led to sponsor interest from Liggett and Myers Tobacco. Surprisingly, Stewart shot down the idea. He was worried about what being sponsored by a cigarette company would do to his image. The show was offered for sponsorship. There were some things that Jim would not accept, however. Chesterfield begged and begged and begged for months trying to get sponsorship. They even suggested tailoring their commercials in different than usual style. But Jim didn't feel that because of his screen image that it would be fair to, and this in all modesty, for him to be sponsored by a cigarette. I've forgotten there was another advertiser wanted very much to sponsor the show. But again, Jim and uh, also MCA, which owned the show, said no. Liggett and Myers would go on to sponsor Gunsmoke. But that didn't stop both Stewart and Ponsett from acting. In December 13th's episode, More Than Kin, he played Hamlet with a road company and helped his friends secure the approval of P.T. Barnum. In a moment, you'll hear James Stewart as The Six Shooter, just one of the many fine programs brought to you Sundays on NBC. Later this evening, listen to the NBC Star Playhouse with two of your favorite stars. Hear Stroke of Fate and the story of what might have happened if fate had reversed historical facts. And be sure to keep tuned for the dramatic story of Last Man Out. It's a wonderful lineup of great programs, all of them heard only on NBC. James Stewart as the six-shooter. The man in the saddle is angular and long-legged. His skin is sun-dyed brown. The gun in his holster is gray steel and rainbow mother of pearl, its handle unmarked. People call them both the six-shooter. The NBC Radio Network presents James Stewart as The Six Shooter, a transcribed series of radio dramas based on the life of Britt Ponsett, the Texas plainsman who wandered through the Western territories, leaving behind a trail of still-remembered legends. (laughs) 
thee of thy sin, Desdemona, or indeed thou art to die. Milord Othello, have mercy on me. I say amen. And you, mercy too. I never did offend you in my life. Oh, pardon, woman. Oh. Say, may I speak the truth? I never did offend. You're offending us, lady. Yeah. <laughs> hey, who is this guy Shakespeare anyway? Ah. <laughs> oh, oh, banish me, my lord, but kill me not. Don't, trumpet. Kill me tomorrow, but let me live tonight. Beat say kill it tonight. Yeah, yeah, let's get it over with. Hey, nay. Now, lady, if you strive... But half an hour. Holy mackerel, not another half hour of this. Come on, Othello, put her out of her misery. Well, how about our misery? <laughs> ladies, ladies and gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen. He certainly don't mean us. Ladies and gentlemen. It appears that our thespian efforts do not meet with your approval. Appears? My company and I have played before all the crowned heads of Europe. We thought the enlightened community of Virtue City would welcome an opportunity to witness the works of the immortal bard as performed by Madame de la Seine, the distinguished French actress, and by your humble servant. We were mistaken. To err is human, to forgive divine. I forgive you. The performance is concluded. Good night. Hey, hey now, just a minute. You mean you ain't going on to the end of this thing? You have understood me correctly, sir. Ooh. What's Shakespeare going to think? Yeah, what about the money we paid? Do we get it back? What about... Silence! Silence, please! My company has more than earned a meager pittance. You ain't earned nothing until the show's over. That's right. Either you finish up your acting up there, you give us our dough. Right. This ultimatum is outrageous. I reject it flatly. Just you stay up there on that stage, mister. I, I said... Please, please, sir, sir, please, there are ladies present. Someone might be injured. You going on with the show, ain't you? Well... Uh, 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 the, 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 uh, performance will continue. Yeah. But under protest, sir, under severe protest. I hadn't been back to Virtue City since the second silver strike. First mines played out all oh, 10, 15 years ago, and the town had been crumbling away like a stale loaf of bread. But the new new strike last spring, oh, that, that for the looks of things, is even bigger than the first one. The old stores all opened up again, half a dozen new ones being built. The new railroad accounted for some of the prosperity. Anyway, that's the way that's why I'd come to town. I I was supposed to meet the train from Chicago and pick up some spare parts for the pump at the Round Y Ranch where I was working. Train wasn't due until the next day, so I headed over to the hotel to see about getting a room. The clerk was sitting behind the registration counter looking through some kind of a contraption. I didn't know what it was. Sure had never seen a gadget like that before. <coughs> uh... 
Excuse me. Uh, oh, I... oh, oh uh, sorry, mister. Didn't know you was there. Well, I... I like just to... got me a new set of pictures. I was sort of anxious to try them out, you know. Pictures? Well, uh, my stereoscope. Oh. oh. Uh, why, you, you, you've seen a stereoscope before, ain't you, mister? No, no, can't say as I have. <laughs> why, it's the newest thing. All the folks back east have got them. Here, j- just let me show you, huh? Now, you wait a minute. Just wait till I find Niagara Falls. Yeah, yeah, here it is. Now, you just look through the front end there. That's right. That's right. Well, well. Well, I'll be doggone. Why, uh, why, it just looks like that water's come right at you, doesn't it? (laughs) Doesn't it? (laughs) Why, you just, you'd think it was real. (laughs) You'd think you were right there. (laughs) Here, here, just, just, let me show you another one, huh? Now, let me see. Oh, yeah, yeah, pyramids. I'm the only fellow in town who got the pyramids. The pyramids? Yeah, they're in Egypt, you know. Yeah. There. Now, how's that? Why, just look at... Oh, I can't believe it, do you? <laughs> Why, that's, well, that fellow's standing out in front of the pyramids. It's just like you could touch him. <laughs> you could just reach out and touch him. <laughs> I, I, I've never seen anything like that before in my life. Yeah, you just wait till I find that red skin to shoot in an arrow. Golly, the way he's aiming it. Well, you didn't know it was a picture. You'd swear he was my, looking at... Uh, key, if you please. Oh, oh, sure, Mr. Plunkett, sure, sure. And you may as well have my bill ready. We'll be checking out this afternoon. Oh, Thought you were supposed to give another show tonight. The uh, performance has been canceled. Hey. Hey, Arch. Hey, beg your pardon, sir. Arch, well, you, don't you remember me? You seem to have the advantage, sir. I don't believe that I... Britt! Britt, Hunsett! Well, what the thunder are you doing in Virtue City, Arch? Why, I haven't seen you since... Since, since last... our triumphal tour of Texas, wasn't it, Britt? Why? When we were the honored guests of the governor, my company and I. You remember he insisted that we stay at the executive mansion? Uh, now, Arch... I, I shall I... never forget the warmth of our reception there. The people of Texas have a true appreciation of the art of the drama, unlike some of our more recent audiences. Audiences? Well, come along, old boy. Come along. You must join us for a spot of tea. Marguerite would be so delighted to see you again. Marguerite? Who's she? My lovely wife. Oh. Don't tell me you've forgotten her. Well, I... Well, no, I thought, I thought her name We've was... We've uh, taken the presidential suite, of course. If you'll just follow me... Well, now, hold on, Archway. I, I've, I've got to see about a room for myself. Oh, nonsense, nonsense. The clerk will take care of these trivial details. This way, dear boy. This way. Marvin Miller, famous for both acting and announcing, was featured in this episode. But anyhow, I was around a lot. I don't know the New York scene at all. But Chicago and the West Coast, I covered pretty pretty thoroughly, I guess. I started in 1931, right after my freshman year in college. Every year when I was a kid, I worked at the office of the fourth in size Metropolitan Daily in St. Louis, Missouri, the St. Louis Times. I did everything. One year I made no money at all because I had to go out and try to sell subscriptions door to door. That was terrible. But I ran the morgue one year. That was a good job, the newspaper morgue, you know. I ran the supply room. In fact, I reorganized their entire supply system. I was on the front desk taking want ads, you know, really doing the dirt jobs, but seeing the business of being in a newspaper from the ground up. I was a copy boy. This was what I did every summer when I went to high school. But when I got to college, by this time the Depression had hit, And the newspaper folded. In fact, it sold out to the number three newspaper in town. 
and there were a lot of professional full-time newspaper people looking for jobs, so I didn't have a prayer for vacation. It was always just about a three-month job, just vacation time or four-month. So I had been a very eager fan of radio in those days, so I applied to my favorite station in town, thinking I might get a job as a relief announcer during the vacation periods, knowing that everybody got a vacation. They auditioned me with copy they provided and asked if I had thought seriously of accountancy or even ditch digging uh, rather than uh, radio. So uh, grasping at a straw, I said, I also do other characters. Now, I had been fiddling around with voices and so forth in high school, did auditorium things where you did imitations of famous radio people like Amos and Andy behind a sheet on the stage, you know, so they couldn't tell how many voices you were doing. And they were pretty successful. So I told them I could do a one-man show. And they said, bring us a sample. Ah, here we are, my dear Brit. Enter. Hey, what, what the Sam Hills happened to you, Arch? What, what happened to your voice? You, you, you <laughs> all in good of... time, my good man, all in good time. Marguerite? That's you, Arch? Yes, my dear. I've brought someone with me. Oh, uh, I have uh, been, um, how you say, taking a little nap to snooze dinners. What, Brad? Why, you son of a gun, what... Well, where did you come from? Oh, Maggie, how are you? <laughs> he was downstairs in the lobby, Mag. I had to get him up here fast before he spilled the beans. Oh, that's right. You don't know we're in the profession, do you, Brett? The what? Show business, Brett. Show business. Maggie and I are actors now. We got our own company. No. <laughs> Permit me to introduce myself. Archibald Plunkett, late of London, Paris, New York, and for an unpleasant moment, Virtue City. Plunkett, eh? <laughs> Couldn't keep on calling myself Archie Plunkett. Once I gave up the dry goods emporium and started acting. Oh, I see. And uh, this charming lady is my wife, the toast of the continent, Marguerite Delessane. What do you mean you changed your name too, Maggie? Oh, just fancied it up a speck. I, I used to be Maggie Rivers before I married Arch. Well, we looked on a map. There's a French river called the Seine, so, uh... Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Uh, just don't seem fair somehow. <laughs> what do you mean, Brett? Well, your folks give you a hand. It seems like you ought to stick with it. Oh, uh, not when you're in the profession. Is that so? Sure, yeah. most actors have to change their name. They do. Yeah, lots uh, Well, uh, I, I, I guess if it's customary, I... Gee whiz, you're actors now, huh? Well, Arch wasn't much good at business, Britt. You know that. He always hated to stay in one place. And then when the drought hit, well, we were cleaned out. Yeah, it was right about then Doc Ryder comes through with his medicine show. Remember the Doc, Britt? Oh, yeah. Yeah, sure. His guitar player left him flat. Run off of that girl he used to do the singing, the one with the yellow tights. Yellow tights? I don't think... Oh... Oh, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. So the doc needed somebody to take their place, and, well, Maggie always had a real sweet singing voice, and seen as how we were broke, anyhow. Doggone tights never did fit me. Well, you're not still with the medicine show, are you? Oh, we sure ain't. Anyhow, we struck out on our own, started in doing serious acting. You know, Shakespeare. Shakespeare? Oh. To be or not to be, that oh, is the I, question. I see. Whether... Tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take up arms against a sea of troubles, and by opposing. That's pretty good. Them. That's Hamlet. <laughs> 
Oh, yeah. Oh, that's... <laughs> to tell you the truth, brother, I was going to appear as the melancholy Dane this very evening. But circumstances have compelled us to abandon the production. Is that so? Yeah, there was little trouble during our performance of Othello last night. Mm, you mean the folks didn't like the show? Well, when they started shooting up at the ceiling, that was the impression that we got. Well, now they shouldn't have done that. I couldn't agree with you more completely. Anyway, we're going on to Rocky Falls. Maybe folks there will have a little more... Oh, who on earth? Right, now you won't say anything. You won't give us away. Oh, no, no, of course not. Your servant, sir. Forgive me for intruding. Are you Archibald Plunkett, the actor? I am he. Delighted to meet you, Mr. Plunkett. And uh, what may I do for you, sir? I happen to be spending the day in Virtue City, and I saw a theatrical poster advertising a performance of Hamlet, one of my favorite plays. Unfortunately, when I tried to buy tickets, I was informed that your company isn't appearing this evening. That is uh, correct, sir. Uh, A sudden change in our schedule. We have so many engagements, we're unable to fill them all. Now, I understand, Mr. Plunkett. I understand. The baguettes of show business. <laughs> See, I happen to be in the theater myself. Indeed? Yes, my card. Oh, thank you. I'm sorry I won't have the opportunity of witnessing your performance. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, sir. Old faker. Why, I bet he's no more in show business than you are, Brett. Probably thought we'd give him a couple of free passes. Oh, Oh, no. Arch, what's the matter? Oh, no, no, no. It it, it couldn't. I've seen things. Britt. Hmm? Here, Britt, what's it look like to you? The name on this card. What's it say? I, uh, let's see it. It says Barnum. P.T. Barnum. Yeah, that's the name, all right. Printing's real clear. We'll return to James Stewart as the six-shooter in just a moment. Now, during the holiday season, with more cars than usual on the road and adverse weather conditions, think a minute. If a child should dash across an intersection, if a tire should blow out, could you stop in time to save a life? As always, during a holiday season, you must be more alert than ever in following simple safety rules. Keep your windshield clear of fog and snow. Be certain your headlights and wipers are working properly. In wet weather, never slam on your brakes. It's a sure way to put your car into a skid. And always follow other cars at a safe distance. Don't be one of those unfortunates who will lose his life in a traffic accident this Yuletide. Be careful, friends. Live to have a safe and happy Christmas. Act Two of The Six Shooter, starring James Stewart as Britt Ponsett. For the next couple of minutes or two, Arch and Maggie just stood there looking at each other. And the way they were looking at each other, I tell you... It was the same kind of an expression a calf gets just before you hit him with a branding iron. Then Arch walked over to the window and raised it up just like he was getting ready to jump out. I thought, sure, Maggie would stop him. She didn't. All she did was just grab the calling card out of my hand, start rubbing her finger over the printing on it. 
Arch, it's real engraven. Yeah. Why can't I do it, Maggie? Why can't I end it all right, right here and now? Oh, now, what are you talking about, Archer? What's got into you folks, anyhow? P.T. Barnum, Brett. You know who P.T. Barnum is, don't you? Well, he said he was in show business. In show business? He is show business. Jenny Lynn, General Tom Thumb, half the stars in America owe their careers to him. Yeah? Don't you see, Brett? He was going to come to the theater tonight. He was going to watch his act with, without us even asking him. Well, we... And if he liked us, well, there's no telling what would have happened. He might have hired us himself. An actor gets a chance like this only once. To appear before... P.T. Barnum. Arch? Arch, maybe it's not too late. It is too late. No, listen now. Now, now the company is still in town. All we'd have to do is unpack the costumes. The performance has been canceled, Maggie. Then we'll uncancel it. I I'll round up the rest of the cast, uh, change your train tickets. Sure, that's it. And, and you, you get over to the opera house. Make sure they, they haven't let it out to somebody else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. oh, oh no. No, no, what about an audience? Oh, yes, um... Well, I tell you, give some of the kids around town passes. They'll spread the word quick enough. Well, now, just don't stand there, Arch. Get moving. Oh, all right, Maggie. Yeah, yeah. All, all, all right. All right. <coughs> well, uh, Maggie, I guess uh, Brit. I'm... Uh, Britt, now, now you go and find Mr. Barnum. What? He must be staying in the hotel. The clerk will give you the room number. Well, I... Uh, tell him we rearranged our schedule again. We're playing Hamlet tonight. But for heaven's sakes, don't let him know it's because of him. Oh. Uh -huh. And and tell him, tell him he won't need tickets. We're saving him the front box. Well, hurry up, Britt. Hurry up before I make some other plans. All right, sure, sure. All right, Maggie. P.T. Barnum launched his showman career in New York City in 1835. He was world famous when he started his grand traveling museum, Menagerie, Caravan, and Hippodrome in 1870. Although widely credited with the adage, there's a sucker born every minute, no proof exists that Barnum ever said it. Come in. Mr. Barnum? Yes? Oh, hello there. Howdy, my name's Britt Ponsett. I'm glad to meet you, Mr. Ponsett. What can I do for you? Well, my friends, the Plunkets, the, uh, the uh, Plunkettes, they uh, asked me to find you. Oh? And uh, they've, they've sort of changed their plans. It seems they're, they're going to stay over in Virtue City tonight and uh, give the show. Oh, I see. And they asked me to tell you that they're saving a box for you if you'd care to use it tonight. That's very considerate, Mr. Ponsett. I'd be delighted. Are you with the company? How's that? Are you one of the performers I'm to have the pleasure of watching tonight? Uh, oh, no. No, no. I'm, I'm, I'm just a friend, you see. Oh, well, thank you for delivering the message. Don't mention it, Mr. Barnum. Uh, don't mention it. Well, I didn't see any more of Arch and Maggie that afternoon. I figured they'd have plenty to keep them busy. This acting job's about like anything else, I guess. There must be a certain amount of work to it. Anyway, about 7 o'clock, I was up in my room putting on a clean shirt getting fixed up to go to the theater and watch their play. Come in. Hello, Britt. Oh, hello, Arch. Maggie. Well, what's the matter? You're just born under an unlucky star, I guess. 
Oh? It's my fault. I never should have suggested giving a performance tonight in the first place. Oh, watch, couldn't you get the opera house? No. No, it's, it's available. Well, Mr. Barnum's coming. He told me so himself. Oh, heaven forbid. Well, I, I thought you were so anxious for him to see you. That's... Not just to see us, but to, to like us, to appreciate our talent. Oh, if I'd only stop to think, Arch. Oh, I don't blame you, my dear. I blame myself. Should have realized the whole idea of our plane tonight was out of the question. Now, now I've sent those kids all over town. Well, maybe we can catch an early train. Sneak away before anyone knows. Now, now, hold on there. Now, what, what are you both so down on the mouth about? Now, you got the theater... And you're going to have an audience, Mr. Barnum included. Well, that's just it, Brett, the audience. Huh? It'll be the same folks who came last night. Oh, I see. Boo us, make fun of us, probably start shooting again. And what'll Mr. Barnum think? We're the worst actors he's ever seen, that's what he'll think. Yeah, but there ought to be some way of maintaining order. What about the sheriff? Here's a man to do it. Already seen him. Yeah? Oh, what'd he say? Said we ain't any better than we was last night, he's... Advising the boys in the audience not to aim at the ceiling. Is that so? Uh, one big opportunity, Britt. And it's ruined before we ever got started. Well, maybe there won't be any trouble. Maybe the audience will like this, uh, what is Hamlet? Maybe they'll like that better than the one you gave them before. They won't. It, it isn't one of our most successful presentations. Uh-huh. You couldn't try something else, could you? We only do two plays, Britt. Fellow uh-huh. and Hamlet. I see. Uh, I guess it wouldn't be much point repeating that Othello, huh? No, I wouldn't. Uh-huh. Well, I'm awful sorry, Arch. I wish there was something I could do. Do you, Brett? Do you really wish there was something you could do? Why, sure, Maggie, sure. Well, as a matter of fact, we did have one possible solution. So? It sort of involves you, in a way. What, Me? You, you see, you, you're practically saving our lives, Brett, if you do it. Explain it to him, Arch. Well, maybe, uh, maybe you, you'd better do the explaining. Oh, no, no. It, it really was your idea, Arch. Go on, Arch. Well, you see, Brett, now, 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 don't say no until you hear me out. Uh, well, I'm not saying anything. You see, uh, we were thinking most of the folks here in town must, well, they must know you by sight, and they know you're the six-shooter. So, it... I said no. You can be darn sure of that. And I kept saying it over and over and over again for the next hour and a half. Oh, what they were suggesting was just Tom foolishness, that's all. I I just had to turn them down, that's all. I just had to do it. And they must have known I wouldn't agree to a thing like that. But no matter how hard I talked, they just talked harder. And being actors, they had strong voices, too, you know. Well, the next thing I knew, somehow they'd managed to drag me along with them to the opera house. Anyhow, after the piano solo by Thelma Featherhill, the curtain went up and the show got underway. Started out all right, too. Audience seemed to be paying attention. Nobody is creating any ruckus or anything, at least not at first. Oh, that this too, too solid flesh would melt. That it should come to this... But two months dead. Oh, frailty, thy name is woman. Oh, fie on, oh, fie, fie, fie. Yes, fie on you too. 
gentlemen, ere yet the salt of most unrighteous tears had left the flushing in her galled eyes, she married. Sounds like old Lady Crandall. She only waited two weeks after Jed Crandall kicked the pocket. Yeah. No, it cannot come too good. But break my heart. Or I must hold my tongue. Better get a good grip on it, mister. <laughs> you see, Bridget, you just gotta do it. I can't do it. can't do it. Oh, look at poor Archie out there. Isn't it, well, isn't it just enough to break your heart? A weary, stale, flat, and unprofitable seem to me all the uses of this world. Your acting's a little flat, too, mister. <laughs> Go on, Britt, that's your cue. What cue? Go on, that's it. Oh, good Horatio, I'm glad to see you well. Hail to your lordship, Riff. Hmm? Hail to your lordship. Oh, yeah. Hail to your lordship. What made you from Wittenberg, Horatio? How's that? A truant disposition. Uh, uh, a truant disposition. Have get to school, kids. Here comes the truant officer. <laughs> I will not hear your enemy say so. Nor shall you do my ear that violence to make it cluster of your own report against you. No, he's bringing out the report card. <laughs> Sid, Sid, you better take it easy. Huh? Don't you see who that is, that other actor fella? What are you talking about? It's Britt Ponsett. Ponsett, the six-shooter? You must be crazy. He's staying at the hotel. I seen him this afternoon. Well, what's he doing up there on that stage? He's a friend of them actors. Oh, if I was you, I'd keep my big mouth shut from here on in. That ain't no sword he's wearing under that rig. That's a six-gun, plain as day. It followed hard upon. Thrift, thrift, Horatio. The funeral baked meats did coldly furnish for the marriage tables. Would I have met my dearest foe in heaven ere I had seen that Oh, woe is me. Now cracks a noble heart. Good night, sweet prince. Sweet, uh... And flights of angels sing thee to thy rest. Uh, Red. And flocks of angels sing you to your rest. Red, Red Golly, we can't ever thank you enough. Why, if it hadn't been for you, I just don't know what would have ever happened. Oh, golly. <laughs> and did you see? He stayed through to the end. Mr. Barnum did. Right through to the end. Britt. Britt, you were great. Arch, I never felt so foolish in my whole life. Do you think he'll come backstage, Arch? Uh, Mr. Barnum? Somebody help me get out of this thing, will you? Come in. Why, Mr. Barnum? Good evening. I just wanted to drop by and tell you how much I enjoyed your performance tonight. We are most honored, sir. Honored. Your future in the theater is assured. And uh, you there, Ponsett. Who, me? You told me you weren't an actor. Well, he was just sort of filling in, Mr. Barnum. Oh, I realize you weren't up in the part, Mr. Ponsett. But such stage presence. Why, the way that audience quieted down when you walked on, I've never seen anything like it before in my life. Never. Now, if you're seriously interested in the theater as a career, 
I would be very happy. No, 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 no. No, no, no. Thanks very much, Mr. Barnum. I, I'm uh, not interested. No, that's, that's real kind of you, but uh, no, thank Oh, oh, no. Well, sir, I got out of that theater just as fast as my legs would carry me. I just don't see how anybody can set out to be an actor. All those people staring at you and that that sweat running down the back of your neck. Holy smoke. Worse than any gunfight, I'm sure. Of course, that applause, that, that, after it was over, that, that, that applause, that, that did sound kind of good. And Mr. Barnum, he, he's very nice about saying that I had stage presence, whatever that means. I suppose a man could get used to play acting if he had to. Sure is a scary business. The Six Shooter is an NBC Radio Network production in association with Review Productions. It is based on a character created by Frank Burt, and the transcribed story is written by him. Mr. Stewart may currently be seen in the Universal International picture, The Glenn Miller Story. Others in the cast were Michael Ann Barrett, Tony Barrett, Ted Bliss, Marvin Miller, and Dan O'Herlihy. Special music for this program was by Basil Adlam, and the entire production is under the direction of Jack Johnstone. All characters and incidents were fictitious, and any resemblance to actual characters or incidents is purely coincidental. This is Hal Gibney speaking. Mary, no! God, let Let go! I simply don't understand it. Of course, the sound is coming from the basement. It's all right, I've got you, Mr. Adam. No, no. Show me what? Gotta get away from those eyes! Get away! Get away! George, no! Are you attracted to the dark? Fascinated by the dramatic? With a side of gruesome and a dash of poetic justice? If your happy place is a gloomy room at midnight, then you should be listening to the podcast, Twelve Chimes It's Midnight. Please join us, won't you, for plays of mystery, horror, and suspense. Find us and subscribe wherever you procure your podcasts. And remember, at midnight, anything can happen. From Washington, the National Broadcasting Company brings you transcribed President Eisenhower's Christmas message to the nation, delivered at the annual Christmas tree lighting ceremony at the White House this afternoon. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. My fellow Americans, here in Washington, 
in your homes across the nation and abroad, and in our country's service around the world. This evening's ceremony here at the White House is one of many thousands in America's traditional celebration of the birth, almost 2,000 years ago, of the Prince of Peace. For us, this Christmas is truly a season of goodwill and our first peaceful one since 1949. Our national and individual blessings are manifold. Our hopes are bright, even though the world still stands divided in two antagonistic parts. Our guest is a man who was as busy as anybody during the great radio days and the days that followed as well. He's Dick Beals, and we're glad to be here with you today. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure. You had a, uh, a very long career in what we call the golden age of radio. About when did it start? It started for me on the campus of Michigan State University. It was Michigan State College then, although we were a university. Mm -hmm. That was uh, fall of 1945 when Michigan State thanks to the general manager of the radio station, convinced me that I'd be better off being a radio actor taking children's parts than trying to be a sports announcer, because I didn't sound like a sports announcer. So the training started not in my classes, which were training me to run a radio station, mm -hmm. plus the other general college courses. But then they had some radio shows on that campus. One especially was rural school music time, and there was a part of a little 10-year-old boy on that, and I played that for three years. But the direction was so good to teach articulation and never running but running and sound your vowels and your consonants. And doing live shows every week in front of an audience was just excellent training. That moved me on as a senior to Detroit, where I started working the Lone Ranger Green Hornet Challenge of the Yukon shows. Then in uh, December of 51, I decided to drive to Hollywood and make it a try out there, and uh, I've been there ever since. Here's a last-minute Christmas shopping suggestion. Jingle bells, jingle bells, bells of NBC. Oh, what joy to cook and bake while listening merrily. Pots and pans, sink and stove, work goes easily. Kitchens ring with happy chimes when tuned to NBC. What will you hear in your kitchen after Christmas? Bacon sizzling, coffee perking, dishes clinking, and, if you're lucky, a new sound. NBC radio listening on that new set. The perfect gift to lighten mother's long hours in the kitchen. Kitchens ring with happy chimes when tuned to NBC. James Stewart as The Six Shooter. The man in the saddle is angular and long-legged. His skin is sun-dyed brown. The gun in his holster is gray steel and rainbow mother of pearl, its handle unmarked. People call them both the six-shooter. The NBC radio network presents James Stewart as the six-shooter, a transcribed series of radio dramas based on the life of Britt Ponsett, the Texas plainsman, who wandered through the Western territories, leaving behind a trail of still-remembered legends. There was a nip in the air, 
Not a freezing, biting, angry nip, but a sort of tingle that made the morning stars shimmer and swung them out of their orbits a little closer to the Earth. Oh, it was a winter nip, all right, but not a hard winter. Not a winter when the cattle would come down from the high places, poking their noses into the ice-encrusted ground. It was a mild winter nip, mild enough so that the breath of the boy on the pinto turned only a faint gray as he rode toward the campfire where the man was sitting. Howdy. Hello, mister. I see your fire. I, I thought maybe you wouldn't mind if I gave my pony a chance to warm up. Sure, sure. Mike's up home. You heading for Thompson's Corners, mister? That's right. I just came from there. Oh, well, you must have been riding all night. Oh, just about. You see, uh, I'm running away from home. Oh, that's so. Ah, well, seems kind of a funny thing you'd pick this time of year to run away. Uh, so close to Christmas, I mean. I hate Christmas. Oh? It, it's just for kids, anyhow. Well... I heard Aunt Millie say so. Christmas is for children. That's what she said. Johnny's old enough to do without all that fuss and nonsense. I heard her tell Mr. Franklin that. Oh, you don't live with your folks, huh, Johnny? No, sir. They, they died about eight months ago. Oh, I see. Christmas was all right when they... When I was with them. Of course, I was a lot younger then. Oh, yes, yes. yes it yes. just beats me the way folks take Christmas so serious. Well, I don't know. Is it getting presents made any difference? As if I really cared about that knife. Well, is that what you wanted, that a pocket knife? I don't want a knife. I don't want anything. I just wish there wasn't any Christmas, that's all. Mm-hmm. Well, I... I guess you aren't the first person to feel that way. I, you know, it seems to me... It seems to me I remember reading a story once about a fellow felt the same way about Christmas you do. Just didn't have any use for it. What happened to you? Well, I, I doubt if I can call it to mind after all this time, but as I recollect... Now, now mind you, this may not be word for word, uh, but as I recollect, the man that it was about, the one that hated Christmas, that is, well, he he was a real skin flint, he was. He just as stingy as they come. Uh, his name was, uh, let me see, his... Eben, something like that. Eben? Eben, yeah, I, I, I'm pretty sure that was it. Well, being so tight-fisted, this fellow Eben, he he got to be the richest man in the whole territory. He owned a ranch? Oh, sure, sure. Had, had four of them. Four ranches and store buildings and farms and maybe a bank or two. He was rich. I bet he had a mighty fine ranch house. No, 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 he didn't have a ranch house. He... Evan wasn't the sort to spend money on a ranch house unless there was profit in it. See, he just lived alone in town, had himself a steady room at the hotel. Well, anyway, one night while Evan was sitting in his room having supper, Christmas Eve it was, well, on this particular Christmas Eve, his only kin, a nephew, lived in the same town. He, he stopped by the hotel. To wish you a Merry Christmas, Uncle, and invite you to our place for dinner tomorrow. Christmas, fiddlesticks. Falderall, I suppose you'd be closing up your livery stable for the occasion. Why, sure, Uncle Eb. And just how are the horses know it's Christmas? Answer me that. <laughs> well, if they don't know it, we will. Can I tell Sally to expect you at three? You can expect me all you like, but I ain't coming. 
not at three or any other time. Oh, if you're making so much money you can afford to be giving parties, maybe I ought to think about raising the rents on the livery stable? Oh, no. Oh, go on, get out of here before I lose my temper. All this nonsense about Christmas. Fiddlesticks. Hold it. Well, after that, Johnny, the nephew didn't stick around there. He got out of Evan's hotel room in a regular gallop. It wasn't very long before Evan had another visitor. He's a young fella, tall, lanky, not very good at speaking. He just plain ordinary cowpoke. He was the foreman of the S&M ranch. Oh, well, it took you long enough to get here. Where have you been? Selling off some of my herd without telling me about it? No, sir. That day you rode by, I was out in the range hunting strays. And a good thing I decided to check up on you, too. What's that cabin doing over by Holly Creek? And who are those people staying there? They're my family. I, I built the shack for them myself. I'm not going to have a bunch of nesters in my property. Tear it down. But well, one of my boys has been sick. I, I can't afford That's to rent it. That's my concern. It's up to you to keep your family and what you earn... So see that you get rid of that shack tomorrow. But tomorrow's Christmas. Oh, oh, well, then you'll have plenty of free time to tear it down. I'll be out the day after to make sure you've done it. Good night. On December 20th, 1953, Ponsett helped a boy discover the meaning of Christmas in a Western take on a Christmas carol. Howard McNear played Scrooge, and Sam Edwards doubled as the nephew and Bob Cratchit. Eventually... This led to Jimmy Stewart's TV directorial debut. Six shooters, Six shooters with, with Jimmy Stewart. Yeah, with Jimmy Stewart. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And we did one time where I played Bob Cratchit. He did a Western version yes. of Christmas Carol. Yes. So, lo and behold, he liked that very much. And sometime later, my agent called and says, uh, Jimmy Stewart is going to direct his first movie. It was a TV show, going to film. And he says, he's going to do that Christmas Carol, and he wants you to play Bob Cratchit. I said, oh, Lord, great, wonderful. So guess who was Scrooge? John McIntyre was Scrooge. Uh, really? Wow. And Will Wright was the oh, ghost. Oh, dear Will Wright. And they played it uh, two or three years uh, during the Christmas season. And, Jimmy, it was the first thing that Stewart had ever directed, and I think the only thing that he's ever directed, to my knowledge. So I feel very privileged to have worked on that. Well, it wasn't much use in arguing. Foreman knew that. So he put on his hat and shuffled out. Now Evan was alone again. At least he thought he was alone. The clock on the mantel started striking eight, and that's it's time for him to turn in. So he put on his flannel nightshirt and reached for the kerosene lamp to set it on the stool beside the bed. And, and right about then... The strangest thing happened. What in tarnation? Johnny, old Eben saw a man's face looking right at him from inside that lamp. Eyes and hair and nose and mouth, whiskers, all, all just as plain as day. Jake! It was old Jake, Eben's partner. There wasn't any mistake about it at all. It was Jake right to a T. Well, Eben sure didn't like the idea of having Jake right in the same room with him. You see... Jake had been dead for over seven years. Not that Eben really believed in ghosts or haunts or anything like that. He told himself he was just imagining all this. I got to get a hold of myself. He put out his hand to turn down the wick, but all of a sudden his fingers started trembling. There was Jake again, across the room this time, standing right by the bureau. No! And when the lamp slipped out of Eben's hand... The room didn't get dark at all. 
Jake seemed to be surrounded by a splotch of bright yellow light, and he was wearing the same boots and breeches and leather jacket that he'd had on seven years ago, the, the day died. But as Jake came closer, Evan could see that he was wearing something else. A small leather saddle strapped across his back. And hanging down from it were two saddlebags stuffed so full of gold nuggets and mortgage papers and land grants that Jake could hardly drag him across the floor. You recognize me, Evan? Oh, sure, Jake. Why, sure, I'd never forget you, but well, what are you doing here? <laughs> and why are you wearing that get-up? Always thinking about land and money. Always scheming and conniving. That's why I wear it. And that's why I've come to warn you, Evan. The saddle you're fixing up for yourself is even heavier than mine. But I don't know what you mean, Jake. I ain't done no wrong. I ain't never done folks no wrong. Have you ever done them any good? Any good at all? Oh, why, sure. I've worked hard. I've saved my money. I ain't been a burden on anybody. Why, you should see our ranches, Jake. Oh, the way I've built them up. I have seen them many times. And I've seen a lot more than that, too. That's my punishment. To spend eternity traveling around, seeing mankind with its trials and tribulations, with its joys and hopes. Is that so terrible? Oh, Eben, to watch them and not be able to help them. You'll find out how terrible it is. You'll find out. Well, there must be some way of avoiding this. Uh, you always were my friend. Hey, Jake, tell me what to do. Eben, you've got to find out for yourself. But how? Tonight, at one o'clock, you'll be haunted by a ghost. Another ghost? Pay him heed, Eben. Pay him some heed. Hey, wait, Jake. Don't leave me without it. Jake. The yellow light sort of faded away and the ghost was gone. It was just like he hadn't even been there. And then... And then something caught the corner of Evan's eye. A little glimmer on the floor... And he bent over to pick it up. A gold nugget. Now where on earth did he... And then he remembered. Those saddlebags of Jake's, they'd been filled clear to the brim with gold nuggets. Howard liked to nip a little bit, didn't he? Uh, we used to do two shows, two Gunsmoke shows. And after we finished the first one, we would break for lunch and we'd all go over to Nicodell. But before we broke for lunch, Howard would take the second script and thumb all the way through it to see how many lines he had in the next show. If he only had a short scene, he could have three martinis. <laughs> If he, if he had a load to carry, he'd limit it to one. But uh, that determined how much he was going to have at lunch. We used to have to ad-lib in the, in the lineup. We were in the audience, and we'd ad-lib for the lineup. I, correct me if I'm not exactly right on this. Do you remember what he said about his son? Oh, yeah, we had to ad-lib in the background. He ad-libbed to me. It nearly caused me to miss a cue where he said, I'm so upset and so nervous. And I said, why is it? It's my boy. It's his first time on the stage, you know. <laughs> All this while we were out there, we came back from, uh, 
one of those days when he didn't have too much to do in the uh, second show, and he had three Bloody Marys. He said, I, I think I should have some food on my stomach, don't you? And I said, I think it'd be a good idea. So we ordered a pot of tea and some cinnamon toast. And as we were walking back to the studio, he said, have you got a jelly cell? And I said, yeah, why? My stomach's burning. He said, I don't know what possessed me to order cinnamon toast. <laughs> you know, when, uh, when we did the two gun smokes and then on Sunday, what was it, Johnny Dollar's at the last one? He used to do five on the, the Sunday when it was five fifteen minute episodes. Yeah, we yeah, did them. Right. Yeah. I used to pick Howard up. He lived between my house and the studio. He would come out and he kind of slithering out of the car and he said, "Oh, thank you for picking me up. You're welcome. Get in, get in. Let's go." He said, "Are you doing Johnny Dollar tomorrow?" <laughs> yes. Will you pick me up? Yes. He said, "I called Norman. He said I've got a heavy part in both of these shows tomorrow." And I'm in all five of those tomorrow. My God, I don't know how I'm going to stand it, and I'm so grateful for the work. <laughs> We're interrupting our story for only a moment, and only to tell you, our unseen audience, that you have helped more than you may realize to make this a very Merry Christmas for all of us on this program. Your being with us each week, your many kind letters, have told us that all the work that goes into bringing you the six-shooter has not been in vain. And we're grateful. So, friends, from all of us, Jimmy Stewart and the cast, our writer, our director, engineers, and sound technicians, our best wishes for a happy holiday season. Oh, yes, and before I forget it, beginning December 31st, the six-shooter will be on the air on Thursdays instead of Sundays. That's beginning Thursday the 31st. The time of broadcast will be listed in your local newspaper. Thank you. Now, Act Two of The Six Shooter, starring James Stewart as Britt Ponson. Gee, was a gold nugget. Then Jake's ghost really had been there, huh, mister? Yeah, there just wasn't any doubt about it, Johnny. Well, what happened then? Did the other spook turn up? The one Jake said was coming to see Evan? Oh, sure, Johnny, sure, yeah. He was right on time, too. Evan was lying in bed, wide awake, of course. He hadn't been able to do much sleep. He was too scared. It was kind of peculiar. Evan was half scared the ghost would come and half scared he wouldn't, you see. But before the sound of the clock had died away, there he was. He's sitting in Evan's rocking chair like he'd been there all night long. And, and this ghost was a, was a young fellow, oh, maybe 18, 19, all dooted up the way young bucks like to dress, you know, fancy chaps and checkered shirt and a red bandana tied around his neck. Howdy, Evan. Reckon you've been expecting me. Yeah, well, I, I, I guess so. You ready to take a little trip? Where to? Back. Way back through the years. Oh, but how can I go with you? It's real easy. You see, I'm the ghost of Christmas past. Your past, Evan. Let's shove off. Well, the next thing Evan knew, he and that ghost were standing out on a snow-covered prairie. There was a circle of covered wagons in front of them, and the people from the wagons were gathered together and listening to a tall, Fear white, not, bearded man. Behold, bring you good he was reading the Bible. Great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto and you. And 
The ghost turned and pointed to a boy sitting away from the others on the tailboard of one of the wagons. Small boy, oh, about ten years old, with hollow cheeks and his eyes all red from crying. Oh, oh no. It was, it was Evan himself on a Christmas day a long, long time ago. Not a very happy Christmas either. It was only a week since the oxen had stampeded and his ma had been killed when she, she fell from the wagon. His pa had died with an Apache arrow in his chest. No, I, I don't want to look at him anymore. Can't you show me another Christmas? Well, it was no sooner said than done. Now Evan and the ghost were in a bunkhouse. And Evan saw himself again. Oh, he's ten years older than the boy on the prairie, but he was lying on a blanket staring up in the ceiling... And then his pal, Jake, came running in, all out of breath. Come on, Eb. Get a clean shirt on. We got us an invite to a party. Huh? Yeah, the boss is throwing a big shindig. He says he'll fire us if we don't show up. Evan couldn't help remembering that party. Oh, the roast beef and the baked ham and square dancing and the pretty girls in their calico. He couldn't help saying out loud to the ghost. Oh, dear. How I wish I... What was that, Evan? Nothing, Mr. Spirit. Nothing. I, I was just remembering how I treated my foreman today. That's all. After that, the ghost took Evan to three or four more of his old Christmases. And none of them were very happy. Especially that Christmas when the young school marm, sitting on the horsehair sofa, had unwrapped the tiny box Evan gave her and then handed it back to him. It's a lovely ring, Evan. But I can't wear it. Well, you're you're not courting somebody else. No, Evan. But you are. You're courting something else. Bill. Land and money, cattle, profits. They mean more to you than I ever would. I'm sorry. Mr. Ghost, no more of the past. Please. I've seen enough. A man wants to forget. Sure, Evan. Whatever you say. And before Evan could blink his eyes, he was right back in the hotel room. But once he got there, he he blinked real hard because all of a sudden the ghost was becoming a different person. He was getting fatter, and his stomach popped out two or three inches, and a few wrinkles creased his cheeks, and finally his chaps turned into a shiny blue serge suit with a heavy gold chain dangling across the vest. What's happened to you? Why are you so different now? You seem to be getting tired of the past, so I thought we might take a gander at the present, if you've got no objection. Well, the hotel room just melted away, and Eben was looking at that cabin his foreman had built on Holly Creek. <laughs> well, that cabin sure was crowded. Oh, there must have been five or six children all helping their mother get the Christmas dinner, all laughing and talking, as busy as summer colds. But when their father came in, he had a long face and a tired mouth, and his wife looked up and wanted to know what was troubling him. Oh, I was just thinking about old Eben. <laughs> That's not a very pleasant thought for Christmas, Bob. Uh, by the way, what did he want with you yesterday? Was it about this cabin? Hmm? Yeah. Oh, no, no, of course not. 
Well, let's get on with dinner. Sit down, everybody. Now, where's my Tim, huh? Well, I guess we're just going to have to eat And Bob looked all around the room. He, he was pre- pretending he didn't see the little fellow in the corner. The boy with an iron brace on his leg and a wooden crutch propped up against the wall. But little Tim, he wasn't going to be ignored. Here I am! So, Bob picked him up and carried him over to the table. God bless this food, this house, and us and our friends. Even old Eben. Amen. <laughs> they... Uh... The family found that part about Eben a little hard to swallow, but they finally managed, and Tim was the last one to chime in. God bless us, everyone. Oh. <laughs> Eben didn't want to watch what was going on in that cabin any longer, but the next place the ghost showed him wasn't much easier on him. There was a big party going on at his nephew's house <laughs> back in the livery stable. And one of the ladies was blindfolded, you see, and, and she was trying to pin the tail onto a donkey. But, but there was something peculiar about this donkey, about the way it, about the way it was drawn. It, it, it looked more like a person than an animal. Well, Eben recognized who it was supposed to be right off. <laughs> you see, folks, I invited Uncle Eben to be with us, but he turned me down flat. So I figured we'd have him here in spirit, if not in the flesh. <laughs> Right back in the hotel room again. That's where Eben found himself. Spirit. Spirit, you showed me the past and the present. What's left to see? The future, Eben. The future. Harry Bartell play the ghosts of Christmas past and present. I started in radio in 1930 in a very weird place called Houston, Texas. (laughs) Worked with what was then one of the most unique features of radio I've ever come across. The motion picture theaters used to send out 15-minute condensations of the pictures that they were releasing in town. And if you were fortunate enough to work on these shows, you received two tickets to the theater. (laughs) And the tickets were then worth 25 cents apiece. And after I left Texas, where I've been doing a lot of little theater work, I came to California to work at Pasadena Playhouse. The announcer with whom I had started in Houston had a brother who was then at KEHE in Los Angeles. That was the Blue Network station for National Broadcasting Company. He introduced me to a man who had a slave mart called Allied Advertising Agencies. And through them, I started in commercials, did disc jockey work, did staff announcing, and finally declared independence one day and said, from now on, I'm going to do nothing but freelance acting. That was in 1943. And that's how Evan came to see a Christmas of the future, a cold, brittle Christmas. And there were two men standing on a street corner, and the coat collars turned up so that Keep out the snow. Oh, he's dead all right. Dead as a doornail. Sure is a Christmas present I never expected. At least whoever handles his property won't be as hard to deal with as he was. Wonder if they'll bother giving him a funeral. And in a frame house over on the side street in the edge of town, a woman was speaking to her husband. Funny. To me, he's been dead for years. Well, I haven't even thought of him since I don't know when. And yet, you know... 
once. Well, once I was real fond of him. It's funny, isn't it? Ghost! Who are they talking about? Those men on the street. That woman I used to know. Who is it that's dead? Tell me. And the ghost slowly turned and stretched out a long, thin, bony finger. And there, right at the end of that finger, was a tombstone, all covered with weeds. Eben could barely make out the name that was carved on it. Ebenezer Scrooge. No. No, no! Uh, uh, what's this? Uh, where am I? Where and you know I? what? He was right in his own bed, in his own nightshirt, and the sun was streaming through the frosted windows. But Eben didn't stay there very long, not for very long. He got into his boots and trousers fast as he could, and he dashed down the stairs, out into the street. Well, you see, the stores being closed gave Eben quite a problem. Well, he, he'd just have to make Fuzzy Wagner open the butcher shop up, that's all. Of course, Fuzzy didn't have much choice, seeing as how the shop was located in one of Eben's buildings. And when Eben told him what he wanted, a turkey and a ham... Well, no, 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 no. I'd better make it two hams and send them out to the cabin on the S&M ranch. <laughs> and they're not to know that I ordered them. You understand, Fuzzy? Here's the money and a little extra for your trouble. Well, before Fuzzy could get his jaw shut up again, Eben was on his way, and he headed right straight out to his nephew's house. And Eben was the life of the party, too. Well, the way he carried on, laughing and making jokes and... Telling stories on himself, and he insisted that they use that donkey with his face on it oh, yes, when they played sir. games, you know. Yes, sir. Because that's what I've been all these years a real four footed, long eared donkey. <laughs> the next morning, though, that's, that's what Eben enjoyed the most. He was up bright and early and hitched the team to the buckboard and drove out to the SM, hurrying the horses all the way. Come on, Bess! Come on, Martha. <laughs> Step a little lively. If he could just get out there before his foreman starts tearing down that cabin. Whoa, whoa, Martha. Whoa, whoa. Yeah. Uh. Well, Robert? Yes, sir? I see you ain't carried out my orders. Well, it was Christmas. I, I just couldn't tell him I'll do it today. Oh, this is the last straw. I'm not putting up with your shenanigans any longer, young fella. Oh, but please, that don't... cabin's coming down, and no buts about it. And then, uh, and then we're building a new ranch house in its place, big enough for you and your whole family. What? Oh yes, I'm also doubling your wages as of last week. <laughs> Merry Christmas, Bob. Even if I am a day late, no, not a day. More like half a lifetime. But Merry Christmas anyway. And, and as your son says, God blesses everyone. Well, that's the way things worked out, Johnny, more or less. Well, that's a fine story, mister. Real fine. I, I reckon I know why you told it to me. How's that? So as I'd understand about Christmas and how important it is to do for other people instead of just thinking about yourself. Well, no, no, I I didn't have that in mind, especially. The story just happened to 
come into my head, that's all. I just... well, maybe if, if I was to give Aunt Nellie something, a present, maybe. Oh, shucks, what could I give her? I don't have no money. Well, of course, there are lots of things that don't cost a penny, not a single red cent, you know. Huh? Well, now, you... Let's see. Take that little spruce over there. I'd be real easy to cut that down with a little fixing, maybe a few doodads from around the house. I, well, I'll bet you can make a Jim Dandy Christmas tree out of that. I suppose so, but what good's a tree without something to put under it? Oh, yeah, yeah, I see what you mean. Uh, Johnny, uh, you don't happen to know Jim Bender, do you? In Thompson's Corner and his three daughters? He's only got two, mister, Sarah and Emily. Oh, is that so? Is that so? Uh, I was spending Christmas with them. I, hmm. Uh, it looks like I'm carrying an extra present. It's a real pretty little red bonnet with feathers on it. I couldn't take it, mister. Oh, no, no. I, I wasn't thinking of giving it to you, Johnny. I, but I was sort of hoping that you'd show me the trail from here on in. Of course, it wouldn't mean you're turning around going back home, but if I was the cause of you changing your plans, I'd feel obligated to pay you back some way, you know. Well... It would be only fair. Trouble is, I haven't got much money, so if you wouldn't mind accepting the bonnet instead, you'd be doing me a real favor, Johnny. I... There's Aunt Nellie out in the yard. She, she looks mad in a wet hand. Well, there is a resemblance. I'll have to admit to that. Where a tarnation have you been, John Carterville? I've been looking high and low for you since dawn. Well, I, I just went for a little ride, Aunt Nellie, to get us a Christmas tree, see? Christmas tree? Fiddlesticks. <laughs> this gentleman helped me cut it down. I'll just take it inside. Be right back, mister. <laughs> As if we had any use for a Christmas tree. I suppose he's figuring there'll be a whole lot of presents under it. No, no, I don't think so. But uh, just between you and me, I I got a hunch there'll be at least one present waiting for somebody. What are you talking about? Oh, no, no, it wouldn't be fair for me to speak out before Christmas. You know that. You you don't mean he's got something for me. No, 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 you mustn't get too curious so early. But... But I thought he didn't like me. I thought he just hated having to live here with with an old maid. Oh, I guess I just don't know nothing about kids. Nothing at all. I, I don't deserve to get... Well, uh, <clears throat> I, uh, I think I'd better get moving along. I, say goodbye to Johnny for him, will you? And, uh... I wonder if you'd uh, give this to him. Hmm? Here, they, uh, tell him the little blade on it's kind of dull, but... Uh, a pocket knife? Yeah. Now, how did you know? So long, man. Oh, God bless you, mister. And Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Please remember now, beginning December 31st, The Six Shooter will be on Thursdays instead of Sundays. We hope you'll join us in our new time.
The Six Shooter is an NBC Radio Network production in association with Review Productions. The transcribed story was written by Frank Burt in collaboration with Charles Dickens. Mr. Stewart may soon be seen in the Universal International picture, The Glenn Miller Story. Howard McNear played Scrooge, and special music was by Basil Adlam. The entire production is under the direction of Jack Johnstone. All characters and incidents were fictitious, and any resemblance to actual characters or incidents is purely coincidental. And now, until Thursday the 31st, this is Hal Gibney speaking. Merry Christmas. Tonight, hear Rex Harrison and Anna Lee in the NBC Star Playhouse on the NBC Radio Network. resolution I made for 1989 is to let the band play more numbers on the show. But, but not starting tonight. <laughs> Jimmy Stewart is here. What can you say about this oh, man? Uh, he's, he's a marvelous actor and he's just a marvelous person. Um, and he does the best impression of Jimmy Stewart I've ever heard of. My life. <laughs> Would you welcome Jimmy Stewart? I can't think of anybody I'd rather start the New Year's Eve or New Year's with than you well, as a guest. Thanks. Good thanks to see you. Honey, I, I, I feel the same way. Yeah, Happy New Year. Did you make any resolutions? I was asking the audience. Or did you give that up? I, I, I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> did you ever used to make resolutions? Yeah. yeah. Like what? Smoke and cigarettes. You quit that? Yeah. And, uh... I, talk them faster. <laughs> After the new year, NBC moved the six-shooter to Thursdays. Even with Stewart's star power leading the cast, without a national sponsor, the writing was on the wall. Unlike with CBS, it was uncommon for NBC to front production costs for very long. The six-shooter would limp into the spring before being canceled after June 24, 1954. 39 shows were produced. In the finale, Ponsett falls in love with Myra Barker. He proposes, but at the conclusion, they realize married life is impossible so long as Ponsett still has wrongs to right and people to save. In the end, Brit rides off into the sunset. Well, thanks for telling me that, Jess. 
and you ain't leaving. Well, I'm leaving. And I'm real proud to know that Myra is somewhat fond of me. Britt, if you love her and she loves you... Oh, it's... It's enough that she cried over me for one night, Jess. You know, I... I remember when I was a kid, my pa was like me in a lot of ways. Always on the move, always off somewhere, getting a new start, taking a new job, hunting a new frontier. He loved my ma and she loved him, but she spent a lot of nights crying. A lot of nights. I just wouldn't want that to happen tomorrow. There's no reason it should. Yeah. Yes. Yes, there is. When she was telling me that story about Sheriff Jennings wanting me to come over to Eagle Falls, I I looked at myself real hard, and I knew that if it had been true, if Sheriff Jennings really had sent for me, well, it had been pretty hard for me to turn him down. Even for Myra's sake, it had been pretty hard. And someday I reckon I wouldn't be able to turn him down or anybody else like him, and... Myra would spend another night crying, you see. One of these days you'll change, Britt. Maybe I will. Maybe I will. Well, can I tell Myra that you might come back to Willow Fort? No, Jess, I don't think you better. Fortunately for radio fans, the entirety of the Six Shooters' one season survives. Four years after the radio show went off the air, Review Productions brought the Six Shooter to TV. It aired in 1957 as The Restless Gun, Frank Burt was consultant for all 77 episodes. John Payne starred in this rendition as Vint Bonner, and the program was sponsored by Warner Lambert. During mid-1958, the series pulled a 40.5 audience share. By then, Jack Johnstone was back on CBS directing Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar. What do you remember about the changing character of Johnny Dollar when Bob Bailey took over the well, role? Well, of course, I knew nothing of the show until I took over. Mm -hmm. I'd never even heard it. I knew John Lund, but I'd used him on Hollywood Star Playhouse or one of those shows, and Eddie O'Brien. Eddie, incidentally, called me one day after Bob Bailey took over and said, would you give me Bob Bailey's phone number? I just want to tell you and tell him that I think he's doing one hell of a great job and so much better than anything I could have done, that it's <laughs> which was very nice. John Stone continued to direct the series until 1960 when the program shifted to New York. Both Bob Bailey and John Stone elected to remain in Hollywood. John Stone would write CBS's last two dramatic radio programs on September 30, 1962. Oh, I don't know. For the last year, I only wrote it. I, they moved production out of Hollywood entirely. I wrote the last year of it. As a matter of fact, the last Johnny Dollar and the last Suspense occurred on the same night. One followed the other, and the Johnny Dollar was written by Jack Johnstone, and the suspense was written by Jonathan Bundy. Bundy was my wife's name. Mm. Quite honestly, I have to be honest about it, I thought 
New York production of those shows was pretty bad compared with our Hollywood standards during that last year when production of both those shows was done in New York. For more information, tune into Breaking Walls, episode 102. Although we're ending this episode by mentioning the early 1960s, with the new year approaching, we'll begin the next episode of Breaking Walls at a time with a different kind of uncertainty. No one familiar with the history of his country can deny that congressional committees are useful. It is necessary to investigate before legislating. But the line between investigating and persecuting is a very fine one, and the junior senator from Wisconsin has stepped over it repeatedly. His primary achievement has been in confusing the public mind as between the internal and the external threats of communism. We must not confuse dissent with disloyalty. We must remember always that accusation is not proof and that conviction depends upon evidence and due process of law. We will not walk in fear, one of another. We will not be driven by fear into an age of unreason if we dig deep in our history and our doctrine. And remember that we are not descended from fearful men. Not from men who feared to write, to speak, to associate, and to defend causes that were for the moment unpopular. Next time on Breaking Walls, we embark on a six-month journey to tell the story of the radio industry between January and June of 1954. We'll cover a tumultuous time with communist fear, radio job insecurity, taxes, tariffs, and the scariest word of all to a radio person, television. The reading material used in today's episode was On the Air by John Dunning, Radio Rides the Range by Jack French and David S. Siegel, Network Radio Ratings by Jim Ramsberg, as well as articles from the Los Angeles Times. On the interview front, Dick Beals, Virginia Gregg, and Herb Vigran spoke to Chuck Shaden. Hear their full chats at speakingofradio.com. Parley Bayer, Harry Bartell, Sam Edwards, Jack Johnstone, Marvin Miller, and Vic Perrin were with Spurback. For more info, go to spurback.com. Art Linkletter spoke with John Gassman. Jimmy Stewart was with Larry King and Johnny Carson. Selected music featured in today's episode was Somewhere in My Memory and Star of Bethlehem by John Williams The Klezmer's Wedding by Andre Moisan Highland Lament by The Corys and Sonata No. 1 for Violin, Opus 13, Molto Moderato played by Michael Davis Subscribe to Burning Gotham the new audio drama set in 1835 New York City it will be available everywhere you get your podcast and at burninggotham.com. A special thank you to Ted Davenport, Jerry Hendigas, and Gordon Skeen. For Ted, go to radiomemories.com. For Jerry, visit otrsite.com. And for Gordon, please go to passdaily.com. I'd also like to thank Walden Hughes and John and Larry Gassman of Spurback. Listen to their shows on the Yesterday USA Radio Network. 
Breaking Walls Episode 123 will begin a six-part miniseries on network radio in 1954. We'll go month by month, beginning with January, as the height of the Red Scare coincides with the death of many radio shows. This episode will be available beginning January 1st, 2022, everywhere you get your podcasts and at thewallbreakers.com. In the meantime, give Breaking Walls a quick rating on whatever platform you listen, especially iTunes. You can also join the Breaking Walls Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash thewallbreakers. And support this show for as little as a buck a month at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. So, until New Year's Day, my name is James Scully. This has been Breaking Walls episode 122, and I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much, and happy holidays. Thank you.